Have you ever listened to the pod and thought it would be awesome if Jen stopped being nerdy about movies for 60 seconds and talked about your business instead? Well, my friends, you're in luck. Watch with Jen is looking for sponsors. Do you own or run a theater, bookstore, film fest, website, school, physical media firm, pod, streaming channel, or small business that might like to advertise on Watch With Jen? Whether you're interested in sponsoring one episode or several, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at contact at filmintuition.com. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome to season four's physical media episode extravaganza. It's become something of a tradition the last few seasons of the podcast to gather a bunch of friends together at the end of the year, kind of one by one, and record short conversations with them about some of the new releases that gather on DVD and Blu-ray and now 4K at the end of each year. Usually I divide these into two or three parts because the conversations get pretty extensive. I remember last year I had like an art film episode and then I had a classic movies and like a contemporary films episode as well. And people have really enjoyed those. But at the same time, I've heard from listeners who said they wouldn't mind a really long marathon episode of some of these people to hear all at once because they were getting confused when they saw like the title physical media a couple times in a row. Sometimes like part one and part two would get left off when they were listening to it on their podcast provider, whatever platform that they were using. So this year, I decided to go for it and kind of release an episode that's sort of on par with one made by our friends over at Screen Drafts. It is a monster episode. You will see probably the longest one we have released. And listen just here and there. You can jump to your favorite conversations, although I love all of these. So I do hope you will give them a listen. On tap, we have, to kick things off, film critic Walter Cha, who writes for Film Freak Central and also freelances all over the place. He will be talking about the film The Warriors. Next up, we have Bilga Ibiri, who is the Vulture film critic to join me to discuss the brand new Criterion release of Days of Heaven in 4K, followed by a trio of some of my closest friends, William Boyle, S.A. Cosby, and Sean Burns. Join me to discuss Carlito's Way, and hilariously, I think it's off-air, Sean kicked things off with, you're a brave woman to talk about Carlito's Way with a bunch of dudes, which cracked me up. And of course, longtime listeners know the bios of these individuals, but William Boyle is a novelist who has written books such as Shoot the Moonlight Out, City of Margins, and Graves End. S.A. Cosby is a novelist as well and has written My Darkest Prayer, Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, and All the Sinners Bleed. And Sean Burns is a film critic at WBUR. After 
the Carlitos Way discussion, we have my dear friend, Nikki Dolson, who is a crime writer, and she's one of our great short story writers. She checked out the movie, The Desperate Hours, the classic version by William Wyler. So the final conversation you will hear in this episode is Nikki and I discussing this wonderful film that I think a lot of people don't know, unfortunately. So again, it's a long one, buckle up, but hopefully it'll join you on all of your holiday shopping errands or just keep you company as you're traveling or going about your day. So let's kick things off. Walter, you know, when you're talking about Walter, you have to have Walter. So we have Cha on Hill. Walter Cha wrote the definitive book on Walter Hill, a Walter Hill film that I'm actually sitting uh, in front of. This is an audio podcast, so I just kind of killed that. But, <laughs> but Walter, it's so good to have you here to talk the Warriors with me. How are you doing? It's so good to be here. I'm always up to talk about the Warriors. What a treat. Yeah. Yeah, I was really stoked when I received the disc from Arrow. I just knew immediately, God ask Walter. And, you know, if you're a Hill fan, like I said, this is the definitive guide. So be sure to order it. You can get it at Matt Solar Sites' bookstore. And yes, it is quite a read. It took Walter years of research and writing. And talk to me about your love of Walter Hill to begin with. You know, it kind of started with a couple of screenings of of movies like The Warriors and, and Streets of Fire uh, on 35. And I, I've seen them in high school, you know, and there's just those VHS classics, you know, that you watch. And, and I, I never thought that much about them later. You know, I was always aware of them. I, I, I really love loved 48 Hours when I was a kid, too, and, and Southern Comfort. And, and it, it wasn't until after fairly recently, like in the last 10 years, when I watched, rewatched The Warriors and rewatched Streets of Fire with a big crowd that I, I, I started to appreciate them as cult curiosities. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's a huge fandom around these things. What's the deal? Uh, especially when, as I was watching these movies again after after a gap of thirty years or so, I was like, "Why? Why do I love this? Why? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm very sophisticated and well educated, <laughs> and you know, I I, I want to talk about the, the the nouveau vague and the Czech new wave, and why am I interested and so excited and and, and heated up about the Warriors mm-hmm. and Streets of Fire, especially you know, what's going on here with the, these movies." And then, you know, I start to put it together a little bit. I'm always very curious when I have reactions to things I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And so I started to put it together and sort of say, wait a minute, I like all of his movies. Uh, maybe not initially as much as I will later, but they stick with me. What is it about him? Because there's a lot of movies kind of that are out there, right? That that you watch and you're like, oh, that's campy or that's curious or that's whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you never really think about them again. Um, well, that wasn't the case with me with Walter Hill's movies. I was always aware of his movies, even if I wasn't always aware that it was the same person. And so I began, that's how it began. And then I started to do that research and who is this guy? What are the things that he's done? Let's get really scientific about it uh, to, to the extent that you can with art. And so I went all the way back and started watching the first produced screenplays that he did, you know, a movie called Hickey and Boggs. And then, oh, yeah. You know, amazing, right? And then films like, you know, the thief who came to dinner and and Macintosh Man, and I was like, okay, wait a minute. Even here, 
like, you know, Sam Peckinpah's getaway. Even here, I hear an authorial voice. I hear something that's happening. And then I began to watch his whole filmography, the TV series that he did and produced. And, you know, it began to coalesce in my head. And that's really exciting for us, right, Jen? It's mm-hmm. like when we're like, oh, wait a minute, who is this Henry Hathaway guy? Or who is this Anthony Mann fellow? And all of a sudden, when you watch a couple dozen of their movies, you're like, wait a minute, there's a artist. <laughs> there's an mm-hmm. art here. And that's what happened with me with Hill. And then further research revealed that, you know, the only real books, studies of him at that time were in German and Italian, I think, were the only two books about Walter wow. Hill. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, this guy yeah. is massively uh, influential among, you know, the young Turks, the, the Tarantinos and the, and the Edgar Wrights and those guys. How could it be that uh, there hasn't been a serious consideration and that became the other part of the book this idea of the self-examination of us as a culture that would look over certain things that we didn't consider to be serious and how we've always done that right i mean it takes Mm -hmm. the french to give us back hitchcock and john ford and all those guys yeah here's another guy i think that we sort of overlooked in, in terms of seriousness you know people would say Oh, him. Yeah, he directs some really good good guy flicks or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's so dismissive and patronizing, ultimately, yeah. because of the depth, I think, of his movies. And we'll talk about that with The Warriors. That, you know, this movie that's just about dudes being dudes, dudes being <laughs> bros, um, is actually about a young woman and her journey to, self, to self-actualization and acceptance of herself. Mm-hmm. The whole movie's about that. Nobody else changes in the course of the film except for the woman, Mercy. And mm-hmm. that, that's extraordinary. And that's not what the book is. And that's not where, you know, whatever. And that this is Walter Hill revealing himself throughout the course of his career. But here in The Warriors, as, as a fairly progressive filmmaker, and he would, you know, slap the taste out of my mouth if he heard me calling him that. But, it, you know, because it's, that's not his intention. I think his intention was only ever to be honest about the human condition. And yeah. so as a result, he's extraordinarily progressive about race, about gender. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Incredible, incredible stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, even with the, the warriors in the book, it's the uh, gang, the warriors is called something else, the Coney Island, something I think, but they, uh, they're an all black gang. And that's what Hill wanted. He fought for it. It was too mm-hmm. early to win that fight. You know, they're like, there's no way. But if you watch the Warriors, you know, there is an all black gang, but the Warriors themselves are Hispanic and black. Yeah, I love that. Unbelievable, right? It's the, America. It's, yeah. It's America. Absolutely. Yes. And this is Walter Hill demonstrating an extraordinary amount of progressiveness in 1979. It isn't just lip service that, that the, the Warriors are, 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 are multiracial. They all have their function. They all have their strengths. They all have their weaknesses. It's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. I mean, no one would ever describe this i think in their heads as progressive but the warriors is certainly that and you know and then we see it throughout the 48 hours streets of fire all the way through alien history i was just gonna alien. say that wasn't that the same year alien uh, the same year yeah, yeah. he and his part his writing partner david kyler and producing partner started a production company to produce alien essentially and yeah. um they they took the script and they essentially rewrote it although dan o'bannon sued and there was a whole lawsuit and with which it's ambivalent who ambiguous, I guess, who won the lawsuit. But um, in exchange, I think, and he can't talk about it. I don't, mm-hmm. but in exchange, he and David Geiler are 
credited as producers for every alien product into perpetuity now. That's amazing. Yeah. They're not credited as screenwriters on Alien, but they are credited as producers for everything, whether or not they touch it for the rest of forever. So, you, you know, the new Noah Folly series or whatever will have executive produced by Walter Hill and David Kyler, you know, as a result of this, the, this um, lawsuit. But anyway, yeah, that was the same year uh, that he and David Kyler produced Alien. And in the original screenplay, Ripley was a man. It's, it's Walter Hill that says, you know, let's make him a woman because there's more interesting power dynamics between a group of men who don't want to listen to a cat lady versus mm-hmm. a group of men who don't want to listen to another man. So, yeah, that is yeah. really fascinating. And I think I saw Warriors for the first time in the pandemic. I was looking it up um, maybe just before around end of 19, early 2020. This was also around the time. Uh, thanks to my friend Drew McQueenie, I was able to finally see The Driver, which is oh. an amazing movie. That was around that same time. It is. And also Johnny Handsome, which our friend uh-huh. Jordan Harper loves. I know I had seen that like growing up, probably on TV. And I remember liking it, but I watched it a couple times for the podcast, actually, and uh, because Jordan was so obsessed with it. So (laughs) this was around the time I started watching some of these Hill movies. And then I think it was even maybe before we became friends. And it was just like bonded by Walter Hill, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. I I adore those other movies that you you mentioned. Johnny Hanson is like. Oh, phenomenal. Oh my gosh. And, and it's this thesis statement that Hill has this idea that it doesn't matter what your appearance is. Uh, yes. you, are what you are, you're mm-hmm. only ever what you are. And, and, you know, it kind of ties to a later film of his that attracted some controversy called the assignment starring oh, yeah. Rodriguez and Sigourney Weaver. And I really believe, you know, this is my soapbox here that it was unfairly judged before it was watched because really what the assignment is about is the very same thing that Johnny Handsome is about that you can change someone's appearance you can even change their physical gender but it doesn't change who you are underneath and that's actually a very powerful pro-trans statement yeah. and it was seen as sort of an anti-trans film for some reason someone that okay. didn't understand all the you know opposite actually he understands very well that yeah. you were born as who you are no matter what you appear to be Yes, that's the message of that film, and it also is 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 kind of a beautiful exploration of Michelle Michelle Rodriguez's bisexuality in a very mm-hmm. strange way. You know, so here's Walter Hill again working in these places, and he's really wounded by the criticism of that film because, for the same reasons, he was really confused by the criticism that oh, you don't get it, you can't just turn somebody into male or female, and he's like, exactly, you can't. Mm-hmm. It's identity, can't. yeah. Your identity is your identity. It doesn't yes. matter what you do mm-hmm. on the outside. It's always who you are on the inside. Yes. Your outside may or may not reflect who you actually are. And that's what Johnny Handsome is about. That's what all of his movies are kind of about, is that you were born as what you are. And that's, you know, I, I, I refer to his films as largely masculine tragedies, you know, because these men are violent and violent men usually come to violent ends and they can't seem to ever find a way out of that sort of uh, labyrinth that, that death spiral if you will and 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 and, and you, you know you get that in the character of ajax in the warriors yes um, who, who is trapped by his masculinity and he's mm-hmm. the guy who's always using the f slur you know to, to, to yeah refer to his men. bravado yeah yep. exactly he's always like, going oh, who are these guys these f words you know and, yeah, and talk, gay panic you know? and, yeah. but at the end of the day what really gets him is that he is trapped because he wants to rape somebody 
You know, he's trapped mm-hmm. by his masculinity. He's overpowering, overwhelming yeah. masculinity. He can't control it. Uh, he's this kind of force of nature. It's played by James Remar. He would come back and play several roles for Walter Hill. In fact, Hill cast him in Aliens as uh, Reese, the Michael Bean character. Oh. But and, and he filmed, you know, for several for several weeks on Aliens. Some of the shots of Aliens from the back or the side, that's actually not Michael Bean. James wow. Remar. Unfortunately, Remar suffered from a lot of addiction problems and oh. got himself kicked off of that film. But, you know, in, in the audition for the Warriors for Ajax, he did the scene with the park bench where he's handcuffed to the bench and he actually oh, yeah. lifted up the whole conference table. It's really heavy wood table. Oh my God. As he was doing it, he was like, all right. And, 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 and Hill was asked afterwards about the casting process and, and everything. And he's like, we had to hire the son of the bench. He lifted the table up. So, that, 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 so Remar really was this kind of force of nature in this movie, but he's at this one scale of the Warriors, and all the way at the other scale, every step in between, you have different kinds of masculinity, and that's really what's fascinating, I think, about the Warriors too. You have, you know, Marcelino Sanchez playing Rembrandt all the way on this side, and he's the chronicler for the Warriors. He's the guy who marks their way. He's the guy who reads maps. He's the sensitive kid who, who reads. Um, do you remember the, the the show 321 Contact? Are you old enough to have watched that as a kid? I remember the name, but I can't like place yeah. it. I'm at least a generation older than you. So I, no. I grew up watching uh, this kid's show 321 Contact, and there was a little Oh my gosh, on PBS. Yes. yes. Yeah, okay, Hound I gang. do, I do, yes. You remember it. Okay, yes. great. Yeah, and, and he was a member of the Bloodhound Gang. There's like, three people that would solve crimes every yes. week. He was one of them. He was Marcelino Sanchez. And uh, he unfortunately died of AIDS in the early 1980s. Oh. He's one of two actors that, uh, openly gay actors that Walter Hill worked with. Franklin Searles is the other guy, the guy who was in uh, Southern Comfort. Um, who both died of AIDS early, early on, and oh. he eulogized both of them. Walter Hill did another sign of this really progressive attitude. Yeah, especially in that era. Oh my gosh, there was so much. Yeah, controversy, and yeah, yeah. which you yeah. saw in the you know Rock Hudson documentary uh, recently. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. He Walter Hill is just a lovely human being. <laughs> you know, he's just a really beautiful guy. But uh, but anyway, there's every stage of masculinity is represented by the warriors. It's represented in the way that they're shot on screen, how they coalesce mm-hmm. around the swan character. You know, um, oh man, man, there's so much to talk about with this. I'm just babbling and babbling. I'm going to let you talk. <laughs> I know he wanted to kind of infuse it with some uh, themes of like Greek tragedy and some voiceover. There was talk I read about like Orson Welles. Uh, he wanted to get to, to read some voiceover. And then there was, uh, as you said, off air, a controversial, um, you know, directors or an alternative cut. Mm. And the new Arrow disc comes with two discs. And the other one is an alternate uh, cut of the Warriors where Hill reads the voiceover himself. So talk to me about the different cuts and what he was maybe trying to get across. Was it uh, sort of overtly explaining the things you were saying were so beautifully woven throughout it without it? Well, I think um, what he was doing was overtly referencing the source material okay which, gotcha. is a, which is an ancient text called 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 anabasis by a greek writer named xenophon and it's essentially the story of it is about a, a, an army that's cut off from their support on, on the black sea and they have to fight their way all the way back to the uh, to, to the sea to, mm-hmm. to, to 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 be safe or whatever it's this uh ancient greek 
myth. And you know, Hill's sources are diverse and 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 learned. Uh, there, he 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 loves the Iliad. Uh, he loves the Bible. He, he he says that there's only a couple of stories in the yes. Western canon, and all of the stories are either the Crucifixion or the Iliad. Um, and so you, you know, he he takes Anabasis as the basis of this uh, of this story, and and and, and it's uh, you know it's, it's also based on a book by Saul Urich, and Saul Saul Urich makes the sort of same sort of reference to it. Uh, but Hill, I think, takes it a little maybe half a step farther. Saul Urich is very much about you know, social activism and social awareness. It's, it's a beautiful book in some places, kind of hallucinogenic in some places. Uh, Hill takes it much more to a place of comic books. And he, he so those two sources, the Anabasis and the comics, are, are things that Hill wanted to be sure, I think, that people understood what they were. So the original screenplay does open with, uh, you know, in 300 BC, there's a, you know, <laughs> he, he wanted Wells to do it because Wells was down the hall doing the other side of the wind, a loopy man asked them to do it. And well, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, wasn't able to. Um, so they ended up cutting the whole thing. They cut out a whole sort of prologue with the, uh, the, the, the former lead uh, of the warriors, whatever there, there's a bunch of stuff that, that was left on the floor. And for the director's cut, Hill did restore the opening prologue to, you know, it, as you mentioned, he read it himself. Yeah. And then they introduced um, animated comic book frames. In that's what I heard. Yeah. yeah, and that's I think a really tragic idea, and because what it does is it really kind of softens. Yeah, the, it makes them more cartoonish, and it takes away the, the grit. Yeah, it takes away the grit absolutely, and it mm-hmm. softens a lot of the really genuinely beautiful transitions that are in the film, yeah. including I think the key transition of the film. It takes that away as well, which comes at the very end of it when Mercy is double exposed with the sunrise at mm-hmm. some moment. You know the that she is the sun and she is uh, Mercy at the end of this film, and that becomes a comic book frame in the director in the director's. Oh. So for the longest time, it was presumed that that was Walter Hill's preferred cut, and it's it's it, it whatever it was at the time, it isn't anymore. He prefers the theatrical. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, to know. It's, yeah, and so, but for the longest time, there's all this sort of hatred sort of thrown at Walter Hill for mm-hmm. having done this to his own film, and and it wasn't available the theatrical cut. Uh, for, it was just the the director's cut was the one that was available. Oh wow blu-ray or whatever and so this release by arrow and a previous release by second sight in, in um in uh in, in australia imprint um they're the first times that we're seeing the theatrical cut a next generation uh definition and that's so exciting because it's such a it's beautiful so movie. flawless and beautiful oh too yeah, yeah the the the, uh, the the director of photography andrew laszlo worked with hill on this in streets of fire and southern comfort and he wrote a whole book about, you know, he's called Every Frame of Rembrandt. He, he wrote a whole oh, book wow. about the process and everything. And something that he developed for Walter Hill specifically was something that he referred to as bad good, which meant <laughs> that traditionally the way that it's shot without, it's underlit, it's smeary, it's wet looking, it's, it feels dank, you know, that's bad. It's so bad traditionally, quote unquote, you can't see me doing the air quotes, so bad that in Southern Comfort, every the 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 company that was developing the film called and said, "We got really bad news, you guys. You sent us a whole real film that's just not usable." 
And so everybody was freaking out. Laszlo was freaking out. Hill was freaking out. They, they get it back from them. Just send it back. Let's see it. They, they, they brought it back and they're like, no, this is perfect. This is exactly what we wanted. This is what we're it, looking for. Exactly. Yeah. It looks wet. It looks moldy. It's like he, he would drape tapestries over the cypress trees to bl- mute the light in Southern Comfort because the swamp could be kind of beautiful, but they didn't want beauty. They wanted it to look like a war photograph. So then, you know, for they. It plays like a war movie. That's another one we watched in our pandemic movie club. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, I want to say it might have been a Judd choice, maybe, or Judd or Travis, yeah. It's so grim. It's so grim. I don't think he gets that grim again until another 48 hours. (laughs) Real nihilistic movies. But, uh, yeah, so the Warriors, and, and, you know, um, Pauline Kael has the greatest line, short capsule review of the Warriors, and it kind of ends with this idea of, like, the whole movie feels like a jukebox in the middle of 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 a honky tonk. And I'm like... Yeah, there's like splashes <laughs> of color. It's dark. It's seedy, but it, it, it's so to have it in 4K now is uh, it's super exciting. It's super exciting. But you know, my theory about Hill, you know, the, the overriding arc about his movies is that as the movies get, as he gets older, as it gets nearer and nearer now to to the modern day. His movies become more and more explicit about their sources. You know, he, yeah. he owes a lot to Edgar Allan Poe's uh, philosophy composition essay. He owes mm. a lot to, to, to Borgia. Um, he owes a lot to uh, comic books and, and the Greeks. And as he gets older, I think he, he desires more and more and more that um, uh, people know what his sources are. And okay. it, it isn't a matter of ego. I think it's more a matter of like, I, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but it, it, it must be hard to have created a body of work that everyone willfully misreads or misunderstands. Like, you know, to create something mm-hmm. that's like Warriors is based on Xenophon. It's a progressive treatise about masculinity and the star of it's a woman. And then to have everybody say, I love the Warriors. I love when they fight with switchblades. I love yeah. that. It's a baseball movie. Somebody yeah, exactly. replied to me yesterday. The, and I'm like, no. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> There's no, I mean, more going be, on. Yeah. Right. It may very well be all of those things, but there is something. Sure. The, the, there's a thread that's running underneath it. And, you know, the director's cut of this movie, I think, is just the first example of a later tendency for him where he's like, maybe I need to tell people that I'm not just some meathead. I mean, maybe I need to start hinting that there's maybe great breadcrumbs here. And I hope that someday. Uh, somebody follows this trail somewhere, you know, and I hope that I'm that person, even if I'm wrong about stuff, I want to introduce the idea about his work as, as valuable and that if you unpack it, there's indeed value in that process, whether or not yeah. I'm right, it doesn't matter. I just want to introduce the concept that you should take a closer look at Walter Hill's films. You don't have to follow my lead. You should just sort of look for yourself and see if you don't see that there's something very fascinating going on in these movies that you can't maybe say about some of the other movies that were happening around the same time, at least not with this kind of consistency. You know, there's some directors that will have like a two or three or five or six film run where you're like, this is really interesting. And then all of a sudden they make the Sons of Katie Elder or some piece of garbage, right? (laughs) Okay, okay. he did take the money a lot. With Walter Hill, I can only really think that he took the money once or twice his whole career. And the rest of the time, he's getting into fights about movies that you don't really, you wouldn't think deserve that kind of fight. You'd think, oh, this is just a money grab for most. It wasn't for him. It was never for him. 
and his his stories, the strength of his stories, and the brevity and the concision of the stories. You know, I, I did an average once, and he even did a two part uh, broken trail. He did a two two part TV movie series that was like you know the the movie ended up being three and a half hours long even with that film if you average out the running time of all of his movies it's under 90 minutes it's like 88 minutes on average all of his films yeah he is not wasting time at all no No, there's not a frame out of place i mean you see that right from like the driver on oh my gosh the driver barely even has dialogue he doesn't even have time to give them names you know know. the, the driver is just a series of movements it's just these series of gestures and people hated the driver when it came out if he wasn't already in the middle of making the warriors and producing alien he may not have had a career but he was already in the middle of doing those things and so they let him finish uh because the driver was such a huge fail isabel johnny turned on him completely you know after it failed um but yeah mm-hmm. you know since of course revived with Edgar Wright's love of it and other Yeah, reasons. just like you know. the Warriors kind of, you know, yep. um, cult status. When I was watching it this time, I was thinking of the directors that came after that were obviously, besides Tarantino, like John Carpenter, you can even mm-hmm. see, oh, yes. uh, Sam Raimi, uh, people that would have really loved it. It's kind of staged like a Western, which I love about this movie mm-hmm. and some of Hill's other stuff. But it's also, it kind of moves like, a musical at times and this was 79 it was the same year like Milos Forman was making hair and uh-huh. it's another movie in New York and it's like they're very different films but there's kind of a grittiness going on in hair and a grittiness going on here and you could maybe see some of the characters crossing paths even though it's like 10 year difference in, in when they're set and I was reminded of that when I was watching it yesterday you are extraordinarily insightful. You know, uh, you're just dead <laughs> on about this stuff because Hill has said that the only movie he's ever made is a Western. He loves the Western. So when you're seeing The Driver and you're looking at the Western, this is, you know, two movies before he's allowed to make his own first Western in The Long yeah. Riders. But he loves the Western. So his movies definitely are. And yeah, there's the young gunslinger that comes after the wizened gunslinger at the end. He's called The Kid. Right, yes. they crawls out of the car, the wreckage, and the old gunslinger lets him go, even though he knows he'll probably be seeing the kids again down the road. That's such a Western trope, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the idea of being stuck in a, in a in a bus station or train station, and so much of the drama happens there, just like you know the Sergio Leone westerns. Yeah, Hill is a huge, huge Western nerd. You know, you can watch his westerns too. The detailed historical accuracy is. Is, is methodical, meticulous. He's obsessed. And so, yeah, you're spot on about that. And the idea about musicals, too, is fascinating because The Long Riders began as a musical. It was written oh, as wow. a musical. And he took it and adapted it. And, you know, one, one of the things really late in the writing process, and he was very, very involved and very not. He didn't want to be quoted directly about analyzing his own movies. He doesn't like to analyze his own films. Mm-hmm. But he 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 called me like very late in the process. And he said, I'm concerned about one thing. I'm like, all right, hit me. And he's like, I'm concerned that the long riders doesn't play like a movie. It plays like a work of music. And that's uh-huh. the rhythm of it. It's music. It's not a movie. It's like, oh, I know Walter, you know, because it was based on a musical. It was like, oh, I didn't remember any of that. You know, I don't know if he did. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, yeah, you're spot on again that there is a sort of musical quality to some of his films because they're so gestural. They're yeah. so almost silent. Even in his later stuff, like 48 Hours, it's so 
or Extreme Prejudice, it's so heavy with dialogue moments that you remember. When it gets to the action moments, the characters express the character through action. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the action stage is very, very purposeful. You know, in all of his sets for the action sequences, he would have one camera that was always going to shoot in slow motion. That's punctuation. Oh, and that's interesting. And, and yeah, and, and and the crew would take bets on the day which one of them would be the one shooting in slow motion uh, because they knew that that was his process that, you know, he cut together this thing. Um, and, 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 and the long riders is a really beautiful extended sequence during a failed great Northwestern bank raid sequence of slow motion horses going through. Mm. windows. But yeah, there's, there's um, me, the musical, the Western, you, you nailed it. You nailed it just by watching the driver. You know, these are the t- two real um, thick threads that you can pull out of, all of this stuff, oh. all of this stuff. Um, they're 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 kind of like the backbone of, of of his ethos, if you will. Um, yeah, you're spot mm-hmm. on. Oh, well, and your origin story too. I mean, you can see it now if you have Netflix. You can check out uh, Walter on Forty Eight Hours, which is brilliant, and it's one of those <laughs> things that you know you might want to show if you're a film professor, show your film school students it's called voir if i'm getting that correctly voir uh v-o-i-r and he has an episode on 48 hours which is really good oh, well thanks for mentioning that yeah it's uh, D- david fincher's um pet project he wanted to have six separate documentaries by six different people talking about films that they loved and the origins of that love for that film. And 48 hours was mine. I actually had to convince Fincher a little bit to allow me to do 48 hours because he and Hill have kind of a, uh, a, a tense relationship. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Just, just uh, well, Hill is uh, it, pr- produced and wrote the screenplay for alien three. Okay. First film. Gotcha. Uh, which Fincher has never liked. And I've, it's become sort of my, uh, my, my my irritating thing for him, for Fincher, I think, is I keep needling him about restoring that movie to the assembly cut oh. and you know, making an official assembly cut of his 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 version of it. For me, of the first three aliens, it's the best one. It, it has the best single, best single portrayal of Ripley in it. Um, she's not masculinized. She's not humiliated. She's the most powerful figure in the in the film. She becomes almost a religious figure, but she's also a woman in charge of her own sexuality. She asks mm-hmm. for sex. She says that she's lonesome. And there's mm-hmm. a scene where she's looking for a place to sit in the cafeteria. And the Charles Dutton character says, you don't want to sit near me. I'm a murderer and rapist of women. And she sits mm-hmm. down and she says that I must make you really nervous. <laughs> it's remarkable. You know, this is the, the character fully formed in um, her own power yeah in her own power and by the end of the film she is the, she is the mother of three daughters mm-hmm. all three of them have been killed uh her body has been sort of exploited by a, the company uh for for its reproductive potential and she's denied it at every point she decides at the end of the day what happens to her body it's very much a joan of arc film in some ways so you know i love alien three i get that it's not as scary as the first one's not as exciting as the second one but what it is is it's full of ideas, and, and it's it's full of the sensitivity that I think people deny Walter Hill's legacy, uh, when, when in fact there it is right right at the very front. Just as Mercy is the star, the hero of the Warriors, Ripley truly is the feminine star, the feminist star of Alien Three. Um, 
anyway, that's a long digression. But uh, you no, know, all, that's fascinating. All, all I think it's things. a good reappraisal, and it all ties in together, basically. It, it does, and that, that that was really the fun of of writing the book was finding a person, a, a body of work that would reward exploration and explication. Uh, that was really the 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 joy of this book, you know, for all of the years and the hardship or whatever it is. Yeah. It was always worth it because there's always a new gift uh, to unpack in each of these movies, you know, upon, especially upon revisiting even stuff like red heat, which mm-hmm. is, I think a very sensitive gay rom-com. Um, <laughs> the, 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 there's stuff going on. Uh, yeah, uh, anyway, I could go on for hours. I have already. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. And it's also the joy of reading your work on Hill and, and uh, appreciating everything you have to say. So Walter, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's always such a pleasure. And I always learn so much. I love it. Uh, uh, same, same. And I, I can't wait to hear about your journey as you keep watching some more of his movies. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen a lot of them, but you yeah. know, the way that you put stuff together is super valuable. It's really important for the legacy and the further conversation for artists like Hill, for people like you, especially just to put your eyes on it because, you know, you're like almost instinctually drawn to all of the things that are alive in a movie. Um, and, and, you know, when you watch Streets of Fire, I don't know when mm-hmm. the last time was you saw it, or Hard Times, or uh, Extreme Prejudice, which is my current favorite uh, uh, of oh, gotcha. those works. I would love to hear from you because that there's like stuff that you can unpack there, and it's important that you do it. You know, we might need to do that in season five. Well, in hey, 2024. Yeah, we'll, we, I'll do a whole series. I'll, we'll be <laughs> that sounds got 24 good. movies or something, so we can do that. Yeah, and our Hitchcock series, you know, yeah, we gotta clone so you Walter, the because you're so busy. So uh, yes, we'll yeah. we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to <laughs> All it. All right. It. Well, thank you so much, Walter. You have a good rest of your day. You too. Be well. And with me is Bilga Ibiri, who is a brilliant critic for Vulture, really intelligent, super nice guy. I think our first conversation was on I think you wanted to call him Captain Eyebrows, or you had a really beautiful way of talking about Colin Farrell. And we talked about A New World, and I loved your writing on Terrence Malick. So this seemed like a perfect opportunity to get you to wax philosophically (laughs) about Terrence Malick in Days of Heaven. But Bilga, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, uh, it's a very, it's a busy season for for film critics, as you know. Um, You know, everybody wants you to see their movie before you vote on this or that award or before you make your top 10 list. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's a nice problem to have. Yes, exactly. Uh, But it's, it's hectic and, you know, there's no way to see everything. So you just constantly feel ashamed that you haven't seen this or that, or, you know, or, or that you didn't give this other movie a second chance because everyone loves it and you didn't or blah, 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 you know, but. Yes. Yeah, I am in that boat with a couple of really beloved films and vice versa, for sure. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to checking out your top 10 and your writing at the end of the year. And uh, this week, it was really cool to watch the new Criterion 4K edition of Days of Heaven. And then within the same 24-hour period, watch a brand new film by Ben Benders, Perfect Days, which is one of my favorites of the year. It's like, Yes, it so is a good. privileged position to be in mm-hmm. sometimes to be able to watch these masterworks uh, and call it work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, 
I'll be sitting there like, cause you know, Vulture always wants a 10 top 10 list from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am much more comfortable with like a top 20, top 25 list. Me given too. Just how many films I see in a given yep. year. Um, and you know, and it's like, I'll, I'll be like trying to figure out what's going to make the top 20 list. And then I'll see some movie that's like really good. <laughs> and I'll get annoyed <laughs> that it's good. <laughs> you know, the, oh, come on. Like, why is this good? Like, now I have to find room for it. It's like, you know, your priorities get so twisted uh, when you're dealing with stuff like that, that I'm like, I'm like, actually actively getting annoyed that somebody made, oh, great, another masterpiece. Like, where, where does this go on the list? You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you kind of have to shuffle then. And what's bad is it's all arbitrary at the end of the day. Course, you're like, yeah. you know, you're you're going on gut instinct. And uh, I remember last year, people were like, wait a second, she has Banshees and Tar and Marcel the Shell. And like, they're in the same, they could go either way and broker and flick. You guys don't understand. These are all great. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. And there's also this weird phenomenon of like the films being released. Um, there are a lot of films that are going to have proper releases next year, but they're having their Academy qualifying week long runs, which are often not publicized. It's like, they don't actually want you to see the movie during that week. They just want the record of it having been shown so that it can be qualified for, for different awards and things like that. So it's like, there's a film I really love called the teacher's lounge um, that uh, it actually won Berlin um, earlier this year really good film i saw it um in preparation for the telluride uh, program uh and i didn't know much about it I, you know I, I didn't follow berlin this year so i i and it took me by surprise a great film i haven't heard anything about it since then and i just found out that it's getting like a qualified release <laughs> at the end of the year this was after i filed my top 10 list and so now oh, i'm like wow. oh, great like like i like i'm not going to be able to fit it in there and it's really good and I kind of wanted to see it again, you know, because sometimes like yeah. if you're going to really go to bat for a movie, you sort of want to see it multiple mm-hmm. times to see to make sure it's sort of sticking in your mind. Um, and I'm just like, oh, this one, too. Like, why? Just <laughs> next year if you need to. I mean, it's obviously it's it's, it's almost a year old. It premiered at Berlin. So whatever. You're going to have to make an addendum is what yeah. we're saying. Yeah. Not yeah. like like as if anybody cares. I do. <laughs> I know? do. Yeah. I want to know. Yeah. Because I pay attention to colleagues and people yeah. whose taste I, I respect. And I love uh, your taste. I'm always following what you're recommending and Farron Smith Nemi and everybody. And so it's really cool to be able to uh, write down new ones that I might have mm-hmm. over overlooked for sure. sure. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, along with all of these movies coming out towards the end of the year, the big Oscar contenders, you have some re-releases and we were just talking off air that next week as we're recording this days of heaven is going and uh, it's back to the theaters, the 4k that's playing at the Egyptian in LA and it's playing in New York and uh, Bilga is writing a piece on it, which I can't wait to read. So Talk to me about your relationship with Days of Heaven. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I do. I do. It was on TV. Okay. Um, it was on TV and it was, I was very young. I was, I think, nine years old, maybe eight. Uh, I think nine. Um, and I came to it like I came to a number of movies through the Ennio Morricone connection. 
Um, I was, I mean, I, I, when I was a baby, I am told there were only like three albums that could stop me from crying. And one of them was the, uh, the LP soundtrack for Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more. No there's way. Kind of, there's kind of this wow. classic, there's this classic LP of it from, I guess, yeah, in the yeah. early 70s, which has like, um, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood, the close up of Clint Eastwood. And mm-hmm. it's funny because in, in the back, it gives you some information about the movies. And, and it, this is like back when they were still using the the American names, the fake American names for the people that made the movie and the people okay. that starred in the so Gian Maria Volonte is called John Wells and stuff like that. <laughs> and for years I would look at this and I'd be like, and then I'd look up the movie on a, you know, on a, in a book or something like that. And like the names would not make any sense. I'm like, wait, this is a completely different people. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on? So confused for the longest time. And then eventually it was clarified to me that in their attempt to try and really break into the American market, they like got rid of all the Italian names and, um, and use these, uh, Americanized names. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, so fiscal dollars for a few dollars more, you know, I was really, you know, like just that music was, um, really apparently important to me <laughs> as a child. And, <laughs> and then, um, so when we moved to the U S, uh, I moved to the U.S. when I was seven. My dad actually came about a year later. Um, but I remember when he first uh, pointed out, to, when Fistful of Dollars first played on TV, and he said, hey, this is the movie whose music you like. Um, oh. So we watched it, and I became, you know, I loved the film. I, yeah, yeah. You know, huge Fistful of Dollars. Probably, probably in the end, I mean, there's no way to have a count of it, but I've probably seen that movie more times than anything because for, for, there was a period when I was watching that movie, like we recorded it on like a Betamax and I was watching it like every day after school and stuff. Oh, wow. Um, but then, uh, but like not long after Days of Heaven played on TV. Um, and. Uh, did your and dad I, put it together for you or did you? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my dad, my dad said, hey, this is another movie with music made by the guy who did the music for the other one. That's amazing. And, I, and so I watched it and it was like, not, I mean, you know, which is funny because it's actually a, a very good movie for, for yeah. to watch when you're young, even though it's not a kid's movie or a family movie or anything like that. But like the, one of the protagonists is a child and, mm-hmm. you know, she, she narrates it obviously. And the, the story is very simple. It's not a prurient yeah. I mean, it's it's a dark story, certainly, but it's told in you know like a fable like fashion. It's it's very sort of simplified. Um, yeah, and in visuals, and the plot is secondary. Yeah. It's about as Sam Shepard and Richard Gere have said, like it's about moments or yeah, yeah feelings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so it really made a huge impact on me um, at that age, and you know, and then we bought the LP. <laughs> Yeah. So we had the LP and the LP for Days of Heaven. Uh, I don't know if people know this, but the LP for D- Days of Heaven was had both the music and some of the um, narration. So there oh, would be wow. pieces of music, but they would be introed with narration, uh, you know, snippets from the film. Um, Ooh, I'd and, love uh, to hear that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know if the CD versions of it or the, what do we call it now? The the, the version (laughs) of that soundtrack that's now available for people. I don't know if that has that as well. But yeah, it definitely had like, the first thing you heard was me and my brother, you know, just (laughs) me and my brother. That was what you heard on the LP. Um, So like listening to the soundtrack was also like kind of reliving the movie in a sense. So, you know, that film just kind of is like bred into my bones. Yeah. that is so cool. Have you yeah. seen the Giuseppe Tornatore documentary on Morricone yet? Uh, I have not. Um, okay, it's really coming uh, from Music Box. I just found it out like last week. It's coming in February. I was lucky enough. I went um, in October. Uh, my friend Donald Logue and I went to the Academy Museum to see it. And oh, oh my God. My it friend was... Donald Logue. <laughs> just Donald Logue yeah yeah. we went to see it and Tornatore was there and you know it was the coolest it's like almost three hours about Morricone and before it was the the Italian consulate and there were people coming to speak and one of Morricone's sons was actually there and they had people translating it which was Mm. uh, very very sweet and it made me feel bad like I'm that much Italian like barely but I, I wished I could speak it it was so beautiful but uh Morricone's son was saying you know my father loved us and he didn't have a ton of rules around the house but like the one rule was we could not play music at home mm. because it would be distracting like he mm. he needed the silence and that was work and uh you know it, it's one of those amazing things when you're watching the documentary and he would just write a song while he was paying the phone bill, you know, and just come up with these ideas of uh, what to do just as a joke, like, I'm only going to use three notes, or I'm going to do this. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's incredible. I can't wait for you to see it for sure. Yeah, I believe I could be wrong. But I believe it's like screening in New York, like as we speak, because there's, there's a Morricone retrospective happening, I I believe at MoMA. Um, and I think it's like starts because I think December 1st was like when it was going to start. And, you know, the, the first thing they were going to show was that documentary, which, of course, I'm missing. <laughs> yes. Now, the one detractor for Donal was he was uh, in Thin Red Line. He was left on the cutting room floor, oh. but they had a, a voiceover of like a fake Malik. Uh, oh. And he's like, that is nothing like that. Because I've heard his impression of Malik, which is hilarious. But yeah. Um, he's like, that is the least Terrence Malick voice of all time. One detraction from it. Otherwise phenomenal. It made me want to, um, look up all of Morricone's sixties pop songs. So I think somebody needs to re-release those on a record for sure. I might have them. Uh, okay. We'll We'll talk. We have a huge, I mean, just a comically huge collection of Morricone cds oh, that's so uh, cool. that my dad and i hunted down like all over the world um so might have them i don't know yeah wow so this was very important to you as you revisited it did mm-hmm. you i'm guessing this became a favorite not like fistful of dollars when you were a kid you weren't re-watching it all the time or is it one that later on had more significance? Is this the first Malik? Had you seen Badlands at this point? Yeah, no, this was this was the first Malik. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw. I mean, I, I I saw Days of Heaven many many times um, over the years, and um, you know, on video, but also you know, occasionally there would be a theatrical screening. Um, 
And what's funny was sometime when, when I was a teenager, I saw Badlands on TV. Um, Badlands played, if I remember correctly, back when you're younger than me. Uh, so you might not remember this period, but maybe you do. I don't remember. It feels it feels like a dream. Do you like Bravo once upon a time? I remember Bravo movies, right? That like, is like, where like, like I when saw it wasn't 400 blows for the first time. Early that's 90s. What, that's yes. when I saw like, like Godard films, you know, they yes. showed Godard films and no commercials either. Like it was you know, awesome. Yeah. yeah. No commercials, heavy duty, international art house cinema films that were like not available on video anywhere. They showed the freaking spider stratagem, Bertolucci's the spider stratagem, which is still really hard to find, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and, and in like excellent copies. To, I, know, I know they were the Janus and the Kino it's and so it's crazy. Incredible. It's so yeah. crazy that Bravo became what it is now. I know. Uh, uh, because it was like, it was the most incredible like film nerd resource ever. And they also showed like, um, they used to show mm-hmm. the South Bank show. Remember the South Bank show? It's the, the mm-hmm. British documentary series where like they have like an entire episode on Zhang Yimou, right? Or an entire episode yes. on like Bertolucci in China shooting the last emperor. Hour, <laughs> you know, like, you know, oh God. Um, it was like the Criterion collection or the Criterion channel, we should say, for people yeah. listening, like before there was one is what Bravo yeah. in the early 90s. And now it's, you know, a lot of Botox and chicks fighting, essentially. It's yes. just it's crazy how like yeah. of all the of all the channels that <laughs> symbolize just how debased yeah. our culture is. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo is the one. Um, but yes, so Bravo. If I remember correctly, showed Badlands. Uh, I must, I must have been like sixteen. I was in fifteen or sixteen. Um, okay. And I saw Badlands, and and it, it was beautiful, wonderful. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's Badlands. Um, but it took a while for me to realize that Badlands and Days of Heaven were directed by the same person, and also that he had vanished. <laughs> you know, yes. because this was this was before he came back with Thin Red Line, and. Um, but then sort of over the years, I, I through like various, you know, movie articles and stuff like that, movie magazine articles and stuff. I, I began to realize about I began to discover sort of the myth of Terrence Malick. And it was, you know, I mean, apparently he wasn't gone. He was, you know, he moved to yeah. France for a while. He married a French woman, you know, and and then I think he came back to Texas to be with his parents. But like he was, you know, I mean, for by all accounts, he's a very nice guy i know number of people who you know who who are friends with him oh yeah um but you know private um and die for sure yeah Mm -hmm. and 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 i i guess i mean there was this actually i actually did some research into this when when thin red line came uh sorry when the, the tree of life came out but you know after uh days of heaven um you know the the head of paramount gave him you know, basically kind of a, a blank check to 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 make whatever he wanted. And he started to work on this hugely ambitious project called Q, uh, which eventually became both the Tree of Life and the Voyage of Time. Um oh wow. And but but it was this thing that he was, you know, he was he was gonna make this big epic film about sort of like the origins of the universe and the origins of life on Earth, but he was going to interweave it somehow with like you know, a, a more sort of narrative story. Uh, 
and he, you know, he assembled this tiny little crew and they they traveled around the world shooting stuff and doing like effects experiments and stuff like that. And I think like one of those shots eventually made its way into the tree of life. Um, but, um, you know, so he was working on this for a year, you know, very secretive, but with like several people who were very close to him. Um, and then as I understand it, he went to Paris, fell in love, and just like pulled the plug on the project and was just like, sorry, I'm going to Paris. <laughs> project <laughs> Q is over. Um, and uh, and yeah, that was it. Like the people who worked on the project kind of went their separate ways. Um, and and but that became part of the mystery of Malik because mm-hmm. it was it was almost like some people were suggesting oh you know this this huge ambitious project like drove him crazy he's been trying to make it for years <laughs> he's got you know 800 page script blah 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 you know and um the mythos but, you know, of Malik yeah yeah and then eventually he did make the tree of life which is incredible uh I mean which is you know I mean I hate to get into like rankings and things like that but like in my mind is you know like probably my favorite Malik now um I put it on my, you know, sight and sound list. Um, but if but if Tree of Life hadn't been there, Days of Heaven would be on there. You know, like it was kind of like I can't do more than one movie by a director. Um, yeah, but that's um, hard. But 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 sort of Days of Heaven and Badlands. I went through a period where I was watching at least one of those films once a week. Wow. Um, and especially once it was once it looked like he was coming back. And that he, you know, that he was making a new film, you know, uh, Thin Red Line, you know, 1998. Um, and obviously that took a took a little while. So um, mm-hmm. but in anticipation of that, I started watching those movies even more. Um, so <laughs> so so it so, yeah. So, I mean, I, in the end, I have seen Days of Heaven many, many times, obviously with a film like that. Um, I mean, you always notice new things, but oh yeah, maybe they're not new things. Maybe there's something that you, you know, noticed 20 viewings ago or a few years ago, sort of it made an impression. And then over the years, other things have made impression. And then you go back to that thing, um, you know, with the films, you know, these films are, I mean, they're alive in a way. So you can just, you know, you can watch them and, and it's not just that you're seeing the film differently or that you're seeing new things. It's like your relationship to the film changes because you change, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and days of heaven is like that for me. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, what, what's there to say? It's such a beautiful film. It looks great. Yeah, um, so the, the, the story behind its creation, I find fascinating because, um, you know, I mean, Badlands was, was a, was a critically beloved, um, but, but not financially successful. Um, no, and but Days of Heaven was a, a, a very ambitious script and a very ambitious project. Um, yeah, and much more on the page. I mean, there were yes, yeah, so many more, uh, far more extensive sequences shot. Like uh, Gear says in an interview, you know, it would have saved us some brain cells because they had to really yeah. go to it and work on these um, heavy dialogue scenes because yes. he said it was, you know, a traditional script or one you would think of. It wasn't uh, sort of this hypnotic, lush. Yeah. Uh, 
I think Malik compared it to like a drop of water on a pond or that's what he wanted for the film sort of a, yeah, um, yeah it to kind of speak for itself or become what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, I think in some ways what we're watching in days of heaven is kind of a salvage job. I mean, it's um, because as I understand it, and again, you know, Malik doesn't talk about this stuff, obviously. Uh, so no. it's, you, you kind of piece it together from things other people have said yes. or written. Yes. And, and you don't know how <laughs> trustworthy they are. But but one of the things that 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 I've heard is that, you know, they, they were shooting and shooting and shooting and, and it wasn't working. Like the, mm-hmm. the dialogue scenes weren't working. He wasn't happy with it. it. Sounds like nobody was really happy with it. And it was kind of a runaway production, it seems like. Um, yeah, I heard he wanted to be like uh, Dostoevsky and just kind of go for coverage and find it in the editing room is what I read. But the 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 thing I've heard is that it was like started off as Dostoevsky and and wound up as Tolstoy. You know, because it uh-huh. became like yeah. it was a much more kind of darker, more intense story. But like for whatever reason, he couldn't make that work. Um, mm. And maybe it was just that he wasn't you know, maybe it just wasn't his style and he didn't realize it, or maybe the actors weren't giving him what he wanted. Who knows? Um, And, and at some point they, you know, they had the idea of just like, well, (laughs) we don't have to make a traditional movie. It can kind of be just like these little moments. We'll, you know, patch them together with (laughs) this voiceover. And I think he and Linda Mance went off and she just improvised stuff or he threw her things to say. And then she went off and, came up with new things to say. Yeah, that was kind of improvised. And yes, it's his Russian novel. Yes. Well, yeah, no, but but, but it was like two different types of yes. Russian novel. <laughs> but, it's, but, but, the, but that's the thing about the film is that yeah. like people don't realize it's like a 90 minute movie. Like, like in people's I minds, know. Days I, of Heaven yeah. is like this huge, immense, epic thing. And you put it on and it's like, you're done minutes? in an hour and a half, 94 yes. minutes, something like that. Um, and um and that's, you know, that's 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 what makes it so beautiful. And I think that's also part of some of the controversy behind the film. Not controversy, but you know, Haskell Wexler always felt a little ripped off that yes. he didn't get credit for it. Um, you know, Nestor Almendros obviously won an Oscar for it, did amazing work, but Haskell Wexler, um, you know, also like shot a lot of that movie. Um, yeah. At one point he like sat there in the theater with a stopwatch and he like he, or wrote a letter yeah. to Roger Ebert saying like, I shot half of that film or, uh, and I know that was also a contentious part of the documentary on Haskell Wexler that his son yeah. shot. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, because, um, and I didn't realize, you know, and you have John Bailey, the camera operator, Mm-hmm. doing a lot of the work because Almendros's uh, eyesight was going and he wasn't yeah. allowed because of the union rules right. to touch a camera. Um, yeah. There's so a also, lot of stuff. Yeah. There's also, there's a, there's a, there's a third cinematographer on the film or, or fourth. If we also count Bailey. Um, this guy, Paul Ryan, um, who, who Paul Ryan, who was a friend of Malik's who wound up also working on the Q project and who I interviewed. Oh, wow. Um, Paul, I don't know what his credit on Days of Heaven is, but he wound up shooting a lot of the nature footage, 
right? Because he would, you know, they would go off and just shoot like, okay, you know, here's a gazelle or here's, you know. Um, And so they wound up shooting a lot of the nature footage that wound up in the film, which is like a lot of the movie. (laughs) Um, Yes, that's what Bailey (laughs) said. He said, you know, second unit winds up being like first unit for a film like this. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, this this is the funny thing about Terrence Malick. And I think it's at this point, it's become just a thing that everyone accepts is back then, and especially also around the time of the Thin Red Line, uh, people weren't entirely aware of this. But it's like, you might work on this movie for a year. But there's a very good chance you won't wind up in it, whether you're an actor yes. or a technician or, I mean, the way he worked or, or a composer. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, composers are yeah, different scores. About, yes. Know, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, Michael Mann does something similar, too, actually, you know. Um, so so it's... Um, there is this sort of the, you know, he's going to experiment and he's going to kind of throw around a lot of stuff. And by the end, you know, whatever he's happy with that, you don't know if that's going to be, you know, the thing you initially thought you were signing up for. Now, I don't think days of heaven started like that. I think days of heaven wound up like that. And I think that style Mm -hmm. of, of filming like he discovered that style of filming almost as a, uh, you know, um, as a crisis management uh, yeah, thing on Days of Heaven it together, mm-hmm. and it eventually became his style. Like it eventually became his method of working. Like he he kind of discovered that method of working because I don't. Yeah. I, yeah. I know Badlands was a very contentious project too, but I don't think that's what happened on Badlands. No, um, and it's interesting. In an interview, Gear was saying, you know, because he had like a good was it two years to edit mm-hmm. Days of Heaven, yeah. and he was taking forever. He said by that point he was probably really sick of the performances and his script and everything and um i give a lot of notes um on like scripts and rough cuts and stuff um that's just something i love to do in the last like decade or so and i had a filmmaker who was showing me his work and there was this performance by a person in this is nothing to do with malik really but a performance by an actress he had to hire because she was the mistress of the money guy and she was not great beautiful woman just not great in the film and it was kind of like every scene she was in when she had a lot of dialogue it would just you know drive the thing to a halt and i kept going like i don't want to be that martin scorsese uh you know critique everyone says but like you gotta keep stripping away the dialogue and Mm -hmm. she got more and more um impressive on on the cuts as they were taking things away because then you could see it in her face and you could and so by the time the thing is done uh he said i showed it to someone they were like she's a real find and like amazing (laughs) nothing to do with you know the first uh rate people you have on days of heaven but i can't imagine watching your film over and over again you're gonna see things and uh you know it's gonna need to be fresh somehow and Uh, but also i mean brooke adams told me that that you know that she didn't think like malik didn't really know what he wanted you know like like he that had would have been hard diffi- yeah yeah he had great difficulty apparently um you know telling, making decisions that's what i've heard yes yeah yeah which you know i mean look i, I have not seen a single film by the man that wasn't exquisite so yeah uh, i am not the person to judge whether the process works or not it obviously works but i'm not an objective judge here um yeah but uh but yeah i mean that's the thing that i find so fascinating about days of heavens 
production is just the fact that it was really it was hard a disaster on some level and and yet like if they it hadn't been a disaster it, yes. it wouldn't be the movie that it is um like i've read the script i've read the script and it's it's interesting it's not like so dramatically different from the movie but there are a lot of different things like the relationships of the characters are different you know oh wow um i'd love to read that That's if cool. i remember correctly it's been a while since i've read it but like the you know brooke adams and linda Manz's characters um you know like like their sisters in in the script, oh if I remember correctly. um okay yeah, like even things like that are different. Um, now, I don't know which draft I read. It's possible that changed before they started shooting or what. But, you know, there's just a lot that's that's been that's been kind of re-edited and salvaged. <laughs> and stuff. But at the same time, I think that um, that also works aesthetically and thematically for the movie, because because in the end, you know, the movie is really about just like how transitory everything is. Yes. Right? Um, like, you know, and, 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 and visually you see that. I mean, this, this immense plain, all these fields, and there's this house in the middle of it, you know, um, it, it, it almost doesn't belong there, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. don't get the sense that this house will be there for another 500 years. Like, it just feels like it's there at this moment in time. Um, you know, and that's kind them. of Malik too. Right. Like you're yeah, not yeah. going to walk into the same stream twice. We're not going to have the light that's leaving on this day is not going to be the same as it would any other day. That kind of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the characters are, are migrant workers. Um, yeah. They're coming in um, for a very brief period of time. Sam Shepard's character is, is obviously dying. Uh, so mm-hmm. he's not going to be around much longer. And, even though this whole scheme of, you know, her marrying him, you know, I mean, Richard Gere's character says, you know, man's got one, one foot in a roller skate, the other on a banana peel. Like he's not going to be around much longer. So what are we, this thing we're doing isn't going to last for that long. In fact, that's sort of how he justifies doing it. It's like, yeah, there's even a great line, which I can't remember, but it's like, it's like, you know, we'll all be gone, you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't just mean we'll all be gone. Like we'll have moved to Chicago. I think he means we'll all be gone. Like we'll be gone. <laughs> like, yeah, we won't be, we won't be, and in a few years, in... it doesn't matter. There's a line like that yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the quality of the movie, uh, you know, and there's that great scene. It's part of a little montage. Um, but uh, Linda Mance's character is looking through a book um if i remember correctly there are like like dinosaurs and things in it um and then it dissolves to sam shepherd in bed kind of writhing mm-hmm. the only time in the film when we see him sick yeah um, it is only right? that once which i yeah. thought was an interesting yeah uh decision yeah as and you realize this whole movie is about extinction mm-hmm. you know like like that's the that's sort of thematically and aesthetically, and in some cases, even sort of on a production level, the whole movie is about just how transitory everything is and how momentary mm-hmm. everything is. Um, and even the fact that it is, you know, what, 94 minutes or whatever, like that speaks like movie starts, movie's over, you know, like it, yes. it's, it's it really sort of adds that quality, that that very delicate, very tender 
Um, yeah, because he's a filmmaker, not afraid of a, of a long running time. And, um, you know, yeah. some of my favorite films of his are just these uh, really long epics. And Days of Heaven is just perfect for what it is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And even the even his long movies, you know, aren't I mean, they're long. <laughs> yeah. When but they long, feel long. like they. Yeah. They're not telling like some immense story. They're no. I mean, you could pick 90 minutes out of any of those and make that the movie and it would still probably work. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the, the different cuts on yeah. Um, yeah, a new world, which is I have to say that's my favorite, but I'm not sure which cut because Great I film. love it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great film. Now, uh, yeah, I mean the the new world. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, interesting. I mean, we've probably had this discussion since we yes. talked about the new world, but um, but the I'm torn about the cuts myself yeah. because I remember when I first saw it. You know, it, it, they screened it for critics uh, in New York. And it was the 150 minute version, mm-hmm. um, which then uh, I, I believe was actually in theaters in New York for like a week or two. Uh, but then when it was went wide, he had cut it down to 135 minutes. And I remember thinking at the time that the 135 minute version was better than the 150 minute version. Mm. Um, there was there were certain things about the 150 minute version that I loved, but the 135 minute I actually did think I was like, this film should be shorter. Oh, you know, okay. Like it was one of those like there can you know I I, I even used to say this about the thin red line although I don't say this anymore I was, I was like I was like there's there's one too many letters <laughs> like like I was like I was like, I was like <laughs> the letters. last letter is not not that the last letter is necessary but like one of those letters you can cut it out um I wouldn't say that now <laughs> no. like I've got more letters <laughs> give yeah. me a more an hour more of this stuff um so Let's I don't have know a five hour cut let's right, bring everyone right, right. back yes right and then the new world you know and then obviously there's the the really long cut that was that came out on Criterion um that uh that I've also watched and still love but it's such a different rhythm because of the way you know it's like the it, it, scenes flash out and they have like chapter headings which such a different feel to it mm-hmm. that I'm kind of like I don't even want to kind of compare this to the other cuts because it feels like a different movie on some level I love all versions um but it's like I I don't revisit the the super long version of the the new world as much as I revisit like the shorter versions mm-hmm. yeah I think I would have seen the 135 minute cut here in Phoenix for sure probably yeah yeah, yeah the 150 minute version didn't play outside of new york and la i don't think and then and then even on dvd the only way to get it for a while was to uh and i had this the the italian um (laughs) italian import version had had both the 150 minute and the 135 minute version and you know you could watch it in english with subtitles um wow but But on the back did it have did it change any of the names or anything no i'm just kidding (laughs) bringing you back to (laughs) fistful yeah 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 so so yeah but days of heaven uh back to days of heaven Uh, again um you know that process of Mm -hmm. the way he shot and obviously days of heaven was not like a huge financial hit or anything i think it was probably a flop but um but at the same time i think he yeah it made 3.4 million and it cost 3 million yeah right which is actually i guess not terrible but you know but um, not yeah what they were hoping but what what's interesting is you know i i feel like when people came to him like when like the head of paramount because head of Paramount, I was, I was watching Days of Heaven that, that made him realize, oh, 
I got to make sure, you know, Malik is working for me. Um, and, and, um, but I think Malik understood that making a movie like that was insane on some level. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe fed his reluctance to sort of go back into it uh, for a while, because I think he realized on some level, this is a crazy way of making a movie. Uh, it worked out, but yeah. like, how the hell am I ever going to replicate this process again? It's like um, a few years ago or a couple of years ago, I did a, um, this is like the least days of heaven thing ever, but, but, uh, but I was reminded of it. I did an oral history of the making of the Disney film, the emperor's new groove. Um, I remember that. Yes. Which is one of my favorite, favorite movies and certainly one of my <laughs> all time favorite Disney movies. Um, and, but the process by which they got to it was was crazy. It was co- yes. supposed to be a completely different movie called Kingdom of the Sun, which was going to be basically like a Lion King style sort of epic uh, mm-hmm. set in South of South America. And, you know, it was going to be very sort of um, it was going to honor that culture. And, and you know, it was the, they spent years developing it and doing all sorts of research. And, you know, it was this kind of romantic, mythical story. And it was just like not working. And finally, like, they just completely replaced the creative team um, or the, the story team who with a bunch of like c- comedians, basically, <laughs> who had like a year in which to finish this movie. And they just got in a room and just started throwing around these crazy ideas um and and just kind of went with it and the result is this unhinged ridiculous comedy certainly the most irreverent thing disney has ever done um and still mm-hmm. very funny and full of just like just crazy slapstick random surreal humor and it's wonderful and if somebody came to you and said all right get me and make another movie like that for me to these mm-hmm. people i think they would have been like well can't be done <laughs> like like you kind of have to go through the you have to go through the, yeah like it first has like another movie has to fail for us to be able to make a movie like this you know it's a journey um, yes and and i think that's kind of what happened with days of heaven um and i think that's kind of what happened with malik where he was kind of like well well i'm not sure this is gonna like i can do this again and turns out eventually he did and maybe what needed to happen was for his myth to get to such a point that people people sort of were not just looking for a good movie from a good director but like they were longing for something like that right because Mm -hmm. because malik goes away for 20 years Mm -hmm. by the time he comes back the film industry is completely different right the Mm -hmm. 70s 70s american cinema is 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 over um we've had the sort of 80s you know blockbuster revolution and then we've had the 90s and, and, you know, he comes right at the sort of start of a period of um, resurgence for sort of American independent filmmaking. I mean, all these guys that that we now sort of adore and talk about, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas mm-hmm. Anderson, um, Alexander Payne, Sophia. Is it right around that time period? Right. It's yeah. like the, you know, second half of the 90s is when they start to emerge and they're suddenly... Um, um, a real uh, even people like uh, even people like Christopher Nolan or, or David Fincher, who you know makes his debut a little earlier, but kind of becomes sort of who he is around that time. 
you know, yeah, and Soderbergh after Soderbergh, you know, yeah, I mean Soderbergh's yeah. resurgence broke in, like, and then right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. it's almost like Soderbergh, a, a second director named Stephen Soderbergh emerges with, with like out of sight, you know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and yeah, and and Malik comes back right in the middle of that, and mm-hmm. I don't know, like I've never thought if that had anything, like one had anything to do with another, but I do think that there was kind of a new appetite in American filmmaking for more adventurous stuff. And I think a lot of these filmmakers were clearly influenced by, I mean, Wes Anderson is clearly influenced by Terrence Malick. Um, Yeah. I think there was also just a general, um, we were missing the seventies and the nineties, like, you know, the fashion came back, the music, and we were just all missing um, this era of like new Hollywood and what had happened with eighties filmmaking. I love a lot of eighties filmmaking, but you know, um, this was the period. And I think also, um, you know, we're mythologizing, you know, Malik and Morricone and those guys for good reason, but also just the people who worked on days of heaven, you have Jack Fisk building like a house, Mm -hmm. the entire mansion, I guess yeah. it wasn't just a shell of a place. He built yeah. it. Patricia Norris, like getting, you know, vintage uh, fabric and she was nominated. Um, you know, just the the way it looks like so many paintings uh, like Wyatt's and um I just I love the color scheme, uh, kind of like molding something out of clay. It looks like uh, you're molding it out of mud or earth. There's, you know, golds and browns. And it's just all the people that work on these and you can't make something alone. That's one of the beautiful things about Hollywood is you might have one idea in your mind. But when you're working with a group of people at the top of their game, they're going to all bring something together that wouldn't have happened without each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's the other thing that happens with um, Days of Heaven uh, after it comes out is you know there are there is critical acclaim for it, and you know he wins Best Director at Cannes if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, and and the critics awards, um, various critics awards organizations. I don't remember if if I, I don't know if it won anything, but um, but this no. is the year there of was the deer reappraisal hunter. too of it, right? Yeah, but the, but this is the year of the deer hunter, and oh I know gosh. that in a lot of these organizations, there's like there was a push by a lot of critics to vote against the deer hunter with Days of Heaven, like so there was oh, wow. kind of this okay. like tension. Um, and um, the reason I find that interesting or or funny in a way is because obviously the deer hunter. Great film. I love the Deer yeah, Hunter. Deer Hunter wins favorites. all the Oscars. Yeah. It's a monumental achievement. Yes. Um, and then, uh, you know, Chimino makes Heaven's Gate. Oh, yeah. Um, which is the end of the. <laughs> which, 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 yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> the, the, I mean, this is the simplified version of. Oh, uh, oh film yeah. History, of course. Which, like, kills American film. Yes. But, but when I watch Heaven's Gate, I think to myself, and I'm not. I'm not the world's biggest fan of Heaven's Gate. I'm not one of these people no, who no. thinks it's a masterpiece. Um, but I do watch it every once in a while because it, there's a lot of great stuff. In it. But when I watch Heaven's Gate, I watch it and I think to myself, this motherfucker is trying to make days of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I think to myself, like it's like it's like he was one type of director. And this this has happened to a lot of people over the years. It's like, and then he saw Days of Heaven and he said, wait, I'm going to try and make a movie like that. And he can't because only yeah. Terrence Malick can make these movies. Um, and, and that's the other thing about the film, which is that his sensibility is so much a part of his sensibility is part of this process and why this process works for him. 
I don't think it would work for other people trying oh, to make no. movies like this. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I mean, we've seen it over the years. People try to sort of make Malick like movies. Um, yes, and, and it's become opinion, a, a an attribute that we're seeing people throw around a lot. The yeah. critics that maybe don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, or like, or like you know, somebody sees a close up of a hand over. Yes, you know, and, like, and it's, it's like, Malick. oh, it's, it's Terrence Malick, and it's like, no, no, it's a Star Wars movie. You know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's you know come back down to it down a little bit. Yes. Um, but that speaks to his influence, obviously, exactly. to some extent, either within the critical community or within filmmaking community. You know, you can interpret it however you wish. But um, uh, but there's something so captivating about his sensibility and the way he makes these films that yes. like it's like the siren song for other directors, because mm-hmm. because in some ways what he does I always want to be careful about using the word pure because nothing is pure. Everything is, you know, yeah, yeah. Everything takes enormous amounts of time and effort. Um, but, but he makes it look so pure. He makes it feel so pure. He makes it feel so kind of spontaneous mm-hmm. um, and just like organic that, that I think other filmmakers see this and they're just like, that's how I want my films to feel yes and 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 then of course they try to do it and then they fail um but um but that's i think what because i know that i remember that quote you mentioned like a a, a, a you know a drop in a pond of water mm-hmm. you know and, and i know when when he said that i don't remember who it was but he said that to somebody and that person was like you're crazy <laughs> like oh, that was wow. like, like like i if i remember correctly that anecdote I don't remember where I read it and I don't know how accurate it is, but that anecdote ends with the person he's saying that to saying, you should seek professional help. <laughs> oh my gosh. That um, is crazy. Wow. But it, but it's so accurate. Like that is exactly how you would describe days of heaven. And it's kind of like his yeah. aesthetic. And when he achieves that, there's nothing like it. I mean, there is nothing like it. And anyone who sees it is just like, holy crap. <laughs> like how yeah. do I do that? You know? I love that. And I also, I love his background. You know, he was a journalist and, uh, you know, a scholar and philosopher. And so he, when, um, I think it was Sissy Spacek was talking about Badlands and the notations and the amount of like preparation, the scripts were always just filled with um, information and stuff like that. And I think there is this, we want to believe that he's just sort of the Zen guy who sits and, you know, uh, because we've heard all the anecdotes that actors have said, like, you know, he catches a light or he sees a butterfly or a bird and he stops shooting and all of that is true. But also behind it, there is someone who is extremely prepared and kind of knows maybe what he wants. He doesn't, uh, it sounds like gear said the, the man can't make decisions, but um, he sort of knows what he's going for and he he might prepare a lot and be in his head. I also love this week, uh, Coppola in his yeah, Instagram that, yeah. post was talking <laughs> about how, how funny he was and yeah. uh, how humor is such a sign of intelligence. And actually, like the first story Donald told me about Malik was Malik just one day on set as he's sitting there like digging a ditch and doing mm-hmm. soldier uh, type stuff in the background. He goes, Donald, you grew up on the border. 
like, did you ever do any nut wrestling? And just like out of the blue. <laughs> and just he had this like sense of humor that would just come out. And, um, you know, you don't think of that. And so I love that all of these people saw these different sides of them. And you need yeah. all those sides to make something beautiful like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and he, um, I mean, obviously, he 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 went to Harvard. He was a yes. brilliant guy, you know, studied studied philosophy mm -hmm. um the um he he translated martin heidegger's the essence of reasons yes um and i have a copy of that and i and i and, and there's a there's an introduction he wrote to it um that that i find really interesting i quoted it in an article i wrote once many many years ago about malik but he says something along the lines of he's talking about how heidegger can be hard to understand mm -hmm. um and 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 he says you know it, it's hard to understand because he's he's talking about things that we don't have words for so he's sort of like almost has to create his own language as which is as, what he does yeah which is kind of what malik is doing right yeah. i mean it's not i mean it's not heideggerian i, I don't think he like, i think he was interested in heidegger because he was a philosophy student and he needed to be interested in something i mean i think you know but I don't think like he's Heideggerian. Oh no, but, no. But but that but aspect of 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 that translation, I think, really sort of jumped out at me because because it it is what he's doing. Like there's the thing he's doing. There is no process for for the thing he's doing. There's no kind of cinematic method for capturing what he's trying to capture. Um, and so he, he just like shoots and shoots and kind of tries tries different things and has his actors do all these different things. And somewhere along the way, he hopefully catches or captures the thing he's trying to capture um, and probably doesn't even know until he's in the editing room. Yeah, he's captured it, you know. My favorite thing I learned this year, I know I'm keeping you all afternoon, but was um, when I was researching Brian De Palma this year, I was reading this book of interviews, and he took greetings and hi, mom around the country. Mm -hmm. You probably have heard this. And uh, it was Malik, uh, who said he was in the audience at one of these mm -hmm. university screenings. I don't know if it was AFI or just he happened to be at one of these screenings that De Palma was, and it inspired him like, I want to do that which is crazy because they, they make totally different things yeah. and I just can't put it together. But that was my favorite little thing I learned this year. I, I think I did hear about this once yeah. it's possible. I heard it from you. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And, yeah. and he's, you know, he's apparently like, I, I, you know, every once in a while you'll hear about somebody noting that Terrence Malick was a big fan of like Zoolander yeah, yeah. or, or um, <laughs> smoking aces. Apparently he was a big fan of smoking aces. Um, but, uh, um, but, but he's, uh, but I know that he was, He's a very big Godard fan. Yes. Um, when I talk to people who worked on the editing of um, of To the Wonder, they actually said, you know, like there was actually like, like he was often referencing Godard. And that's fascinating, too, because Godard is also a filmmaker, obviously, lots of different iterations of Godard as a filmmaker. But but Godard is also a filmmaker who became very frustrated with the traditional mm -hmm. process of making films. I mean, and he like right from the get go, he kind of didn't, you know, I mean, this is actually he's got a very, you know, classic quote about this when he made uh, Breathless. He said, 
you know, I thought I was making Scarface and it turned out I was making Alice in Wonderland. Um, you know, like he thought he was making like a gritty, edgy, noir, really romantic noir. And like he just either couldn't do it or somehow just his sensibility was totally different. And he wound up with Breathless uh, and just completely revolutionized cinema, but didn't maybe expect to revolutionize cinema, you know? Um, and, and I so think cool. Yeah. And, and like, and, and you can see, I mean, in Godard's films, you can sense this inability to, to sort of inability or refusal to do things the traditional way so much so that he builds it into the aesthetic of the film. I mean, so many, I mean, not just sort of the fourth, you know, breaking the fourth wall stuff, but also like his refusal to sort of show certain things or, you know, the sort of elliptical editing that he does and things like that. Um, or the way that he chooses to show certain scenes. Sometimes it's very consciously sort of denying you the thing that you want. And sometimes it's just like, didn't get it. <laughs> you know, didn't, yes. didn't, didn't get it. Yeah. C C Claire Denis does something similar. She said something similar um, to me about uh, Beau Travail, you know, because they had so little time, she said, in Djibouti. Um, to, and she, like, she had a much more traditional script. Um, but they were worried that they didn't have enough time to shoot everything. So they shot like the rehearsals and they shot like the, the boot camp training and stuff like that, that the actors were going through. And so they just shot all this footage of the stuff. And then when she was editing it, sort of, she had the idea of sort of working that stuff in and not worrying too much about hitting the different plot points that, that she thought she needed to make sure she had. Uh, and she realized she discovered while making that film that it's okay to have these holes in your movie. Um, I mean, look, you can do that. If you're Claire Denis, you can do that. If you're Terrence Malick, you can do that. If you're, you know, Jean-Luc Godard, these are like yeah. the, 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 some of the most inspired, brilliant uh, people, you know, yes. Who inspire the world has ever other. produced. Yeah. So yes. it's like, if other people do it, it might not work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have to do your own thing and find your own way. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's uh, what we love about Malik so much. Yeah. But thank you so much for doing this. Do you have any oh, last you. thoughts you want to? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's the, the, I remember this story. So did you say that there was a 70 millimeter print of it that was going to be shown? Yeah, I so, think at um, Egyptian. That's what I oh, heard. That's great. That's I great. don't know. Uh, Unless I, I, I got that case. info. <laughs> no, I hope that's the case. The thing I had heard was that I, I do think there are still 70 millimeter prints of it. And I think I, it's probably, you know, they might have struck a new one, which would be great. Um, but. Um, and Martin Scorsese tells the story about how uh, sometime in the 80s or early 90s or something like that, um, somebody at Paramount was tasked with destroying extra prints of days of thunder the tom cruise Tony I Scott remember this racing story. picture yes. right um and because because you know obviously you know before be digital really, yeah. they, i mean you put a movie out on 2000 screens that means you have to make 2000 yeah. prints and as much as we love to preserve prints like that's a lot of that's a lot of space to keep. <laughs> um, but like they went and did just destroyed all these prints, which is still tragic. Yes, of, of days, days of, of thunder, which is not even a movie I like, but I'm like, you know, oh, <laughs> yeah, give yeah. me one, I'll keep it. You know, um, <laughs> but uh, but 
in so doing, they accidentally destroyed one of the last remaining 70 millimeter prints of, um, of days of heaven. Mm. Um, so, uh, so I haven't, um, I've never seen days of heaven in 70 millimeter. And for a long time, I was assuming that there were no such prints, but, but I think, you know, now with like resurgence of interest in 70 millimeter, thanks to, you know, people yeah. like Paul Thomas Anderson and Christopher Nolan, hopefully, I'm keeping my fingers crossed unless somebody every once in a while people will jump in my mentions uh to make me jealous about new york and la screenings and i'm like really is that really happening but yes yeah so and now, now that i've crossed. now that i've moved out of new york it's it's like i'm i'm still making my peace with that um <laughs> because i'm because i'm also in the position well i could go <laughs> you know yeah yeah uh, yeah it's a fast flight from phoenix like i can be in la really fast but yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> but it's like oh yeah um so so yeah but i'm yes. very excited for the re-release of days of heaven and i'm excited um, to read what you write about it because um i always love your work on malik and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me and i, I always learn so much thank you it's always a pleasure and it's Jen just jumping in here with a little note for you. It does turn out that I did receive bad information from a reply guy. It is not going to be the 70 millimeter print, at least to the best of my knowledge. It is the 4K release, though, the new edition, which is stunning. So it's still extremely worth seeing on a big screen. I'm insanely jealous of everyone who gets to go in New York and L.A. or wherever it is playing. So do check that out. But I did want to jump in with an addendum to correct that fact. Thank you. Got Sean Byrne, Sean Cosby and William Boyle to talk about Carlito's Way, which I know is a film we love. A lot of our friends love. So do you guys remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, it was the first movie I saw at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, this giant movie palace that has since become an event space. <laughs> in 93, you saw it right in the theater. That's yeah, awesome. Oh, yeah, I saw an advanced screening before it opened for uh, somehow. That was my freshman year at NYU. And then I oh, would cool. not stop going to see it. And then like, I had to go see it when it was at the Waverly because the Waverly is in the theater. Or the Waverly's yeah. in the movie, so they like drive up oh, to yeah. the theater and everyone in the theater <laughs> watching the movie is like, yay! <laughs> early version of the Rick Dalton point. <laughs> I ended up buying a bootleg of it on Canal Street, one of those VHS tapes that was they recorded in the theater because I couldn't afford to keep going to see it every weekend. So I would just have the, the VHS <laughs> with these great audience participation cheers. And, and like the people getting up at mid the, mid movie. Yeah. To go to the <laughs> There's like shadows walking across the screen. <laughs> a classic time in American cinema was the, was the bootleg, you know, because it's like you're watching a movie and all of a sudden there's some dude in the, in the distance like, oh, this is bullshit. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> We especially a movie like that, that, like when Kleinfeld gets shot or something, people just yeah. <laughs> the the first time I saw it, it was my it was also my freshman year in college. I was at Christopher Newport, and I was an English major. And Christopher Newport University didn't have a film department, but all the English majors hung out with the people that wanted to do film so like if you wanted to do film you kind of got shoveled into like a theater department right and so we all hung out together and this guy ended up being a good friend of mine was like hey man 
we're all going to see this new movie, Carlito's Way with Al Pacino. And I was such an Al Pacino fanboy. I didn't even look it up like to see what it was about. I didn't like go to the paper or uh, another relic from our past. I didn't call movie phone or anything. I'm, I'm just going. I'm just, it's Al Pacino. I'm going. And I remember going and it was like a big group of us. It was like four, four guys and three girls, including myself. And none of the girls liked it. Like they just like, they hated it. Like from the beginning, you know, and it was like, oh, this machismo. And we didn't use the term toxic masculinity back then, but I think that's what they were getting at. And then meanwhile, all those guys were like, this is the greatest fucking movie I've seen in my life. (laughs) You know, I think it, it all hinges on, this is the beginning of the loud Al Pacino, you know, where it's a lot of, ah, ah, a lot of this is the beginning of grunting Al Pacino. But yeah, it works the son of the woman context. era, that whole era. Yeah. Right. But it works in this context because Carlito Brigante is this larger than life character. He's a myth even to himself. He's created this myth around himself. The myth of street cred, the myth of the, the baddest player on the street and so it works effortlessly in this in this film and yeah like sean i i would just i went back to see it like three or four times and then i went down there used to be a place in in the city uh because i grew up in the country but if you go into the city it was a place called peddler's village and they had all the bootlegs all the pirated that's where you went to go get hong kong action films so they had all the john woo stuff and everything and so we went and got a bootleg of, of uh carlito's way which ends Five minutes before the ending of the film, because the dude oh making God. the movie, like, I guess, got kicked out. <laughs> so I'm glad I got the movie before I got the movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that was my uh, that's my first time. How about you, Bill? Uh, yeah, I, I I was about 14 or 15 when it came out, so I was already pretty seriously into the movies, and I loved Pacino, of course, and I loved The Untouchables, so I knew. I knew De Palma somewhat. I don't. I don't know what else of his I would have seen at that point, other than The Untouchables, which I really love. Maybe I'd seen Scarface already. Maybe, maybe I saw Scarface after this. I can't quite quite recall. But I saw this uh, in the theater when I was yeah in high school, and and then I rented it a bunch. And um, I I I'd forgotten honestly that it was after Scent of a Woman. I forgot that Scent of a Woman was before this, but. Uh, yeah, it was that 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 kind of era of Pacino, that that new kind of Pacino voice uh, that <laughs> that kind of took over in the '90s, uh, and just yeah, I remember just uh, you know up there certainly with Buffalo '66 is one of my most like quoted movies of the of the '90s. I mean, just a um, a Copland maybe like those those movies. I just always find a way to work work lines and even today just re-watching it last night i just like walking around the house going sasso you know or whatever <laughs> um just yeah i mean I, yeah i loved it from the beginning i saw it a bunch of times you know on on uh rented it a lot i think at some point i dubbed a copy of it from my video store and just rewatched it a lot um and this movie i go back to quite a bit i mean you know I love De Palma and, and there are other movies of his that I, I think, you know, it's hard for me not to put at the top, like Blowout and, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, 
sisters and dress to kill and you know all that all that stuff i love femme fatale i love all that stuff but i usually find myself saying carlito's way is my my favorite movie of his yeah i kind of go with like favorite and best so like favorite for me is untouchables and best is probably blowout that kind of thing this is actually i think the first movie that i really remember just isolating like Sean Penn like who is this guy and I mean I think I'd seen him I would have been about 12 I'd seen him in a couple things but this was the movie where I think I'd already seen State of Grace but it was around here where I really got into uh, my Sean Penn era because I mean he's amazing in here just like Pacino is doing the most acting so is Sean Penn but it works it's from a different uh, angle I love the entire cast. I mean, you have Vigo Mortensen, Guzman, you have um, just every Penelope Ann Miller. Everybody is great in this. John or John Ortiz. I mean, there's so many great, there's so many great people who pop up in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the big exciting thing, remember, like this was one of the times Sean Penn had quit acting. Yeah. He hadn't been in a movie That's in right. like two years, which you yeah. know, too, you know, wow, well, yeah, hadn't been in a movie like since State of Grace or something, which is no time at all, but. To us back then, it seemed like, oh, my God, he hasn't been in a movie in forever. <laughs> and yes. then within five minutes of seeing him in this looking like Larry Fine, it was like, oh, our boy is back. <laughs> he is back. Yeah, this was after Indian Runner him directing and deciding he was going to be. Yeah, he was just going to be a director. Yeah. An O-Tour. And then this great Bozo the Clown cokehead comes in. Yeah. <laughs> that hair, it's hard not to stare at that hair just the whole time. It's just the best. It's like Albert Brooks kind of albert brooks fish but better yes the way he disappears in the dave klein though the way you know <laughs> sean penn can be a bit insufferable at times but having him and al pacino <laughs> movie together <laughs> at times i'm being generous um but you know him and al pacino in the same movie at the same time you know it's two of our greatest american actors though the last at that time last 25 30 years and they're both at the top of their game. And, you know, it's before, you know, with all due deference to Pacino, I love the guy, but it's before he sort of became a sort of parody of himself. It's, you know, yeah. it's this sort of swaggering performance that he does, which is different from Tony Montana. Well, Tony Montana is a straight up sociopath where mm. Carlito is one of the old school gangsters that wants to have a code. And it always struck me that he was more offended by Dave's betrayal than he was hurt because it broke that old school code mm -hmm. and of course we know there is no real old school code but there's sort of this myth again that uh carlito's created about himself and about the world that he moved <laughs> in and then here comes dave kleinfeld who's sort of you know the movie takes place you know uh, a few years uh in like late 80s i think it's set in the late 80s and you know dave kleinfeld is sort of that new american gangster that you know is a corporate guy who's you thinks they can come into the streets and push people around and you know we, we've all seen the movie. We know what happened today, but I, to see the two of them together at the same time, it's it's remarkable. It really is. You know, you think about Gino and all the great actors that he's acted with, and mm -hmm. it's like that 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 resume is long. So, yeah, I remember watching you know, my old roommate. We, we were like almost two hours into the movie, and she turns to me and my friend and says, "I thought you guys said Sean Penn was in this movie." Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. It was a really small TV and we were drunk, but. <laughs> <laughs> that is the mark of a really great actor for sure. 
and someone who loves the artifice like you know some some actors they find the walk and that's the thing i mean you just know like for pen it was like oh the fucking hair man like i'm gonna get he's always hair. said he's a hair actor yes when he gets the hair <laughs> that that's gonna be it for sure this is also it kind of feels like of a spirit with another one of my favorite sean penn performances in falcon and the snowman which yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites. It's funny because this book, this movie was based on a book um, by a, 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 a Latinx two. Uh, two writer. Edwin, yeah, two books, right? Two books, yeah. Edwin Torres. So it's a combination of After Hours and Carlito's Way. And I love the sort of, the sort of, I don't say realism, but sort of the just, the, the old school, dirty New York City that he brings on the page. And into the and you know put the Palma replicates in the movie. There's a I think for me as a kid growing up in the country in the South in the 90s, I always felt a little disappointed. I know it sounds crazy for anybody who lived through it, but I always felt a little disappointed. I didn't get to experience that New York City, you know, the old New York City. You know, you go to you go to Times Square now, you you might get accosted by somebody in an Elmo costume, but you know, New York City in the 70s and 80s. It was literally, you know, it was it was an adventure because you were taking your life in your hands, go to town square. And I think there's something poetic there and beautiful about people who lived at that time who made something out of nothing. And and again, it's sort of emblematic of the book, the books that uh, Mr. Torres wrote, but also the performance that Pacino gives. And the whole movie has this, I don't know who the cinematographer is, but the movie has this beautiful sort of washed out 70s era Serpico sort of tone to it uh to to the film that i love I, you know i love you know i've talked to jen's ear off about my love of 70s era pacino but this movie really is able to sort of bring that to the forefront in you know in the 90s so uh again De Palma, i think it's one of the movies where he's more restrained he's not doing all the film tricks there's no split very few little like split screen and weird shots it's a really sure hand from a director who sometimes doesn't know how to control his excesses so you know that's another thing i love about this film yeah i mean there's still the marks of de palma like you know we're gonna have a train station and we're gonna have an elevator and escalators and some of those things and you know uh, a very sexy woman who is working in some kind of you know uh either sexual field or just she's uh, some it's kind of Ben Miller. It's not the best casting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's not the movie be... kind of stumbled there. Like, uh, no, you needed someone a little older and skankier to play Gail. Like, well. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's gorgeous. Yes, and um, I was the like... sprightly young gun and Betty Lou's handbag girl. <laughs> you know, it was kind of. It's funny you say that. Kindergarten cop era. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I always thought I always thought Ellen Barkin. Would 90s Ella Barkley? She actually would have been, been a better. Yeah. yeah. No offense to Penelope, Penelope Miller, but she seeing looks a little Ellen like Barkin, a kindergarten. There was teacher. a moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's not washed enough. Like you know, the, you know she's just, <laughs> there was a there was a moment in the nineties when Sean Ellen Barkin was the most. There was a moment. There was a moment in the nineties when Ellen Barkin was the most sensual woman in film, like hands down. You know, and and I, I it's been interesting to see her take on it. That that being said, I think Penelope Penelope Ann Miller does bring a certain sort of weird innocence to this role. You know, she's supposed to be you yeah. know a woman from the street, but there is sort of this weird 
optimism that mm-hmm. sort of helps raise Carlito up, you know, out of this sort of, you know, this, 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 this sort of purgatory that he's found yeah. himself in. You know, she's an you know, idealized from- thing to climb up. Yeah. Like she's the golden girl on the, on the shore. Yes. It was also, I mean, for me, you know, going from as I, as I age from like, you know, 10 or whatever, seeing adventures and babysitting into my teens and seeing Penelope Ann Miller in this and Elizabeth Shue and leaving Las Vegas within a couple of years. It was pretty, (laughs) pretty, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty good time to be alive, you know, (laughs) pretty good, pretty good to make that transition with them um but i do i also think getting back to what sean was talking about as a as a new york movie i think it's really underrated as a new york movie it's not like a movie you yeah. see talked about in that way that much and it is you know it's made in 93 set in the mid 70s or whatever and um it's you know it's this moment it's being made in this moment kind of right before new york is about to change really like, you know, 96 or whatever is, is kind of the beginning of the new, the new New York or the Giuliani kind of in full swing era. Um, and so it's really interesting as a document of, of New York. It's got some great location shooting and, 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 I, and talking about it as like a De Palma movie. I mean, I think it's got, when I think about De Palma, I think about his, you know, his set pieces. And I think this, Carlito's way is like three or four of my favorite is of his set pieces. Yeah. Yeah. You got the pool hall, you've got the chasing, you've got, you know, yeah. And and I love the scene when, uh, when Sean Penn's character gets stabbed. Oh my God. Incredible. Oh, that's the best fake out. That's so good. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of no, my I, favorite. I That's just like, like, a... no, like, Bill, like Bill was saying, I just, that, that those, those scenes, like it's sort of this weird movie that's not talked about as a New York movie, like After Hours or, it's funny, you, you talk about a movie like, like something that's a New York movie. So like, you know, we mentioned Serpico before. I think After Hours is is, is thought of as a New York movie, um, you know, Goodfellas and stuff like that. Uh, even The Warriors, which is sort of this fantasy of New York, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, but, Carlito's way is sort of at this nexus of like Bill was saying, this change that's coming to New York, this slow, you know, the 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 uh the Wall Street guys are the new gangsters, you know. And I again I think Dave Kleinfeld was sort of, you know, unintentionally a sort of uh avatar for that. That it's not gonna be the street guys, it's not gonna be the guys, you know, in the uh the waist length leather coats that are gonna rob you blind. It's gonna be a lawyer, it's gonna be a executive and I don't I don't I don't think that was the intention that De Palma or the crew were going with when they made the movie, but that's what I took from it a lot was that the sort of passing of the changing of the guard, so to speak, in in respect to white collar crime versus street crime and and on and so on and so forth, you know. And I, I think for me, being immersed in that world again, not living in New York, living in a small town, sort of seeing what this sort of maze of corruption that exists in all big cities, not just New York, but, you know, specifically New York being an East coast kid. Um, I thought it was fascinating. Um, you know, we haven't talked about, we've talked a little bit about, um, Sean Penn's performance. And, uh, I think the thing that I love about his performance in that is that, like you said, he creates this artifice. He immerses himself in this role 
And you never quite know where he's coming from. Like him yeah. and Carlito are best friends. They're buddies. They're pals. But he's a coked up dude that you can't trust. And I think he plays that fine line so well. Even in the last, his last scene when Carlito slips into the hospital and unloads the gun, you know, it's just, he's still playing the angles. He's still trying to make, you know, and for me, ultimately, and it's just, just this is what I took from it. It speaks to a sort of idea of condescension that some waspy upper crust white guys have when it comes to dealing with uh, uh, Hispanic and black people. Where like, you're my buddy, you're my pal. Uh, we're cool. We can dance together in the club that I own. But secretly, I still think I'm smarter than you. I still think I'm a little bit slicker than you. And for me watching it, I love that scene when he takes the guns, a uh, bullets out of the gun. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> it's such a great fuck you to Dave. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you think you're smarter than me? Well, think your way out of this with you know and so i love that and again those are subtext subtextual things that i'm seeing i'm not saying though that they're in that movie but for me as a kid watching it and then now watching it years later as a as a, as a middle-aged man oh uh, <laughs> but uh i definitely can feel those subtextual uh sort of uh themes and, and vibes and again i'm sure that that wasn't a, the palmer's intention but it's definitely there uh, and I think it's something that is is interesting to contemplate. Well, at the same time, what's interesting, like every time Dave fucks up, which is a lot, but it's always <laughs> this resentment. Like he's like the he's been the bullied nerd, and now he's got a little taste of power. Yeah, and he just he's got to stick it to everybody that's been fucking with him, and that's how he you know you killed us, Dave. But you know he 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 kills them because of that. He's just like you motherfuckers aren't going to tell me what to do mm-hmm. anymore. I'm the man now, mm-hmm. and that's what that's mm-hmm. all of their mm-hmm. undoing. Yeah, yeah, little, it's all on bravado. Yep. Yeah, that machismo that mm-hmm. Dave wants that Carlito has in space, that charisma, that that masculine energy that he covets, you know, and he, he, he feels like the only way to get it is to pretend to be a tough guy. Like Carlito tells him at one point, you know, you took that money, you're a gangster now, you know, you've mm-hmm. crossed that line, you're no longer a lawyer, but he's not a gangster. He really ain't, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a shook one trying to be a crook son quote mob deep. And so <laughs> that's definitely something I, I see in that performance. I, again, I love Penn. I think, I think Sean Penn is probably top five for me as my favorite actor to watch perform. I don't think he's a likable guy, but if he's saying <laughs> something, I got to watch it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like Nicolas Cage. I think they go hand in hand, those two. Yeah. The Racing like, with the Moon Boys. Yes. You have De Niro and Pacino and then Penn and Cage for me. Yes. Absolutely. And John Leguizamo is great in this. Um, I was watching a behind the scenes feature in the new disc today, and it was like an old electronic press kit interview with De Palma. And he was saying that it took some convincing because Leguizamo at this point was a pretty big star, you know, that he was going to have to play kind of a supporting role. But he said he's so good in this. And he is. Yeah. Oh, like I think it speaks to us as we're getting older because it's a movie about hating your younger self. Yes. And, you know, like when they say, like, with like, was I'm like, why do you hate him? He was you. And as we all get older, we hate, you know, and they're like, Carlito's created this whole bullshit vision of himself as this, 
this knight who's you know he's like never me you know I was never like that and it's like of course you were. just like him and then who ends up killing you it's your younger self like, yeah yeah yeah. That's very existential too, you know, that younger yeah. version of yourself is what takes you out. And I think you see that a lot in gangster movies. I think you see it in gangster movies because being a gangster is such a almost phallic thing. It, being a gangster, being a tough guy is this sort of, in some people's mind, the epitome of masculinity. You know, it's mm-hmm. the closest you're going to get to being a, you know, on a battlefield and a medieval night and, and all this BS that, you know, gangsters tell themselves. And so it sort of, you sort of, it lends itself to the sort of existential interpretation and, and, and interrogation of what do you do with your younger self and the mistakes that you've made. And, you know, I talk about that in my writing a lot with, with the, the characters in my books. And so, um, you know, but you learn that from movies like Carlito's way uh, you learn that in like the Godfather part two, um, you know, you see that again, two Al Pacino movies, but you can do it in Goodfellas, you can do it in um, you know, Mean Streets, anything like that. You know, whenever a character in a movie says back in the day, they're really telling you something they're ashamed of. <laughs> well, That's Carlito, it. he's not even taken out by his younger self, it's by his younger self and his employee. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think you brought up a really good point though about masculinity and identity the difference too between Dave and Carlito is sometimes um, character individuals join a gang for survival essentially, but then you have maybe the more well-to-do guys who think that they have to, you know, be a tough guy or that kind of thing, just because that's like macho or what they're supposed to do. So it's two different reasons behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of that, that scene where he um, tells Gail, like how he kind of went down this road. I mean, that, that makes all that so clear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I've never, like when I first saw it, you asked the question earlier, when I first saw it, you know, as a 17 year old college kid, it's like 18 year old, whatever I was, it's like, yeah, this is a badass movie. You know, when I'm, you know, to Sean's point, I'm 18, 19, 20. I watched this movie, you know, I, I watched it, in the years after I first saw it with my friends drinking and sort of finding my way as a man. Mm-hmm. And now I watch it now as a guy in his late forties. And it's so apparent that Carlito was going through an existential crisis. He's, he's in a midlife crisis. He, yeah. he's gotten out of prison and he's only been gone for five years. The world hasn't really changed that much, but he's changed. And I think yeah. a lot of what he does in the film is him realizing I've lost a step. You know, I've been gone too long, you know, and it's a lot of bluster and it's a lot of uh, uh, over the top and overindulgence. And but what at the core of it is a man realizing not that the world has passed him by. But he's not a part of this kind of world anymore. And it's hard for him to admit that. And it's hard for him to accept it. And by the time he does, it's too late. So I, I take that and again, seeing the movie in two different phases of my life. You know, yeah. really makes me uh, look at it that think about it that way. Perfect. Yeah. I think we come back to it too because it's just so it's easy to watch. Like it's the most and this the movie just flows. Like the camera work is so elegant, and you just kind of drift from one scene into the other. There's nothing really abrupt or jagged in the movie. It's no. all just like and like you were saying, like it doesn't get credit as a New York movie. I think it's because most of it is in that club. 
Which, what fucking club looks like that? It's, it's like the low boat. It's amazing. And you've got this great spiral staircase, and the camera never stops moving. The club is like a luxury yacht. Yeah, it's like the club in <laughs> night, essentially, which I know I'm going to be talking about with you guys in a few weeks. Yeah. 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 I think I think for me, now I'm, I'm wondering, I want to ask you something, Bill, as a native New York guy and uh, somebody who grew up uh, in that area, did you feel like that was a movie that mythologized New York in, in a way that like turned you off? Or was it something where it was it took the real New York and turned it up a notch? And, you know, for somebody who lived in that area, in that area, and, and I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, so growing up there in the 80s and, and 90s, it was movies did largely kind of, and I liked, I liked gangster movies in particular, so that kind of mythologized a lot for me, you know, um, between, you know, this and Goodfellas and Sidney Lumet movies and Q&A, which is also based on a Edwin Torres novel, um, you know, all that, all that, the Lumet movies in general, Corsese in general, you know, I mean, all that. I grew up, the neighborhood where I grew up is where um, French Connection and Saturday Night Fever scenes were shot from for for, uh, for those movies there. So all that stuff definitely mythologized it. But also, yeah, only only certain movies really felt like they got something right. And I think, you know, um, this is different from something like I don't know like Sidney Lumet shoots New York in a way that it just it just look and James Gray does this too like those are probably the two directors where I, I they see New York in the way I see New York like the way it looks De Palma is a little bit more stylized obviously but yeah but I love I love that I mean it's a different it's a different angle on it and I, I just uh I like making that kind of drama out of it I guess very much. Do you have any other points you guys want to make on the film before I let you go? Um, I just want to say David Kep's, uh, yeah. I think I'm pronouncing it right, K-O-E-P-P, Kep's script is really tight. I don't know how many rewrites were done to it, but it's, to Sean's point, it is a tight film. There's not a wasted yeah. motion in that script. Every word matters. Every word counts. You know, mm-hmm. and I, was, I was talking to somebody the other day about writing scripts. Somebody's trying to get me to write one. But <laughs> anyway, um, the thing about writing scripts is, as a, as a screenwriter, you really, you have to know, it's like like being a butcher. You have to cut away, trim away the fat, you know, and get the prime cut. You have to get what's most important about the film through the dialogue. All dialogue and film is expository to a certain point. And so even if you're not talking about a direct thing, you know, I, I did a, I did a thread about um, Pulp Fiction the other day on Twitter. And, you know, the Royale with cheese scene is not about the cheeseburger. It's about how comfortable Jules and Vincent are with each other, even on their way to kill somebody. When mm-hmm. you watch the scenes in Carlito's way where he's bragging, he's very, very braggadocious and stuff. It, it, of course, Pacino brings a lot to that performance. But what Kep, I think, is doing in that, again, is showing us through language that Carlito at his heart is kind of afraid and he has to be this larger than life character. He has a certain amount of inherent charisma, swagger, bravado. But again, this is a guy who's been in prison for five years 
and he doesn't want to be a part of this world anymore. And it's not because he's a good guy, and it's not because he had a change of heart. It's because he realizes he can't keep up with these new type of gangsters. And I think Kep did a really good job of writing speeches and monologues, you know, where you really get that. You really understand it. And you can see past sort of the leather coat and the bushy beard and the 70s hair to see a guy who is, frankly, terrified and really wants to get on that train and really wants to go to get out of New York. And, um, you know, I think he doesn't get enough credit uh, for that script. So I just wanted to mention that. I love Cap, and I'm glad you brought up like the Royale cheese while talking about it because, um, I mean, I love a lot of Cap's scripts, but it just reminded me of his script for Panic Room and how there's a scene where like uh, Kristen Stewart is diabetic and she's, you know, trying to like hold it together and she's naming the Beatles albums and you can just see it's kind of like a self-soothing technique and it's not about the Beatles or trying to be cool or pop culture. It's about something else. So yeah, that's something Cap does really well. How about you guys? Any other thoughts? I just said go back to Al. Like, I know this performance got a lot of shit at the time. Like, the <laughs> 90s Pacino was not well-reviewed following Son of a Woman. There was a big backlash. Yes. And at first, I'm like, well, he doesn't sound like any Puerto Rican I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, Latino Al Pacino is a whole other thing. That doesn't it's sound different, like yeah. <laughs> it's a vibe. Like, <laughs> but i remember my film professor was like i don't care about his accent look at his eyes yes and if he does he looks so yeah. haunted in the movie yeah and i remember seeing a great interview with the palma where i said i told him to move like my cat Ooh. <laughs> and if you watched That's him funny. during like the, the whole running at grand central station he he's is playing cat, like cat. yes that's amazing, that's amazing. John. i've one last thing I'll say, you made me think of it. I've, I've said this again. I've talked poor Jen's ear off about the Godfather, but oh, there's something he did in the Godfather. He does something similar in, in Carlito's way. In the Godfather, when he's Michael, not the boss, when you see him right before the boss gets shot, before Vito gets shot, and you have that scene where he's talking to Kane, and he's wearing his uniform and, and everything, he sits up straight. He sits mm-hmm. up straight. He looks at her. He kind of leans this way. He leans that way. The moment he becomes the Don, he slouches all the time because it's sort of, and I don't <laughs> think he did it on purpose. I think it was just intuitive. Yes. The weight of this world is on his shoulders. And, yeah. and like I said, again, I, I told you guys before we started, I watched it again last night. The thing he does in Carlito's way is every time he's delivering one of these, I'm reloading and all these, these, you know, <laughs> these quotable lines. Yeah. But if you look at his face, you mm-hmm. look at his eyes. He's terrified. Yep. He's scared to death. And all he has to hold on to is the myth of himself that he's created. You know, it's almost like if you watch a John Wick movie and John Wick talk to you about himself all the time to shore himself up. You know, again, tough guys don't have to tell you they're tough. Everybody else will tell <laughs> you for them. And Carlito was yeah. the other technique that people, Pacino invented in it uses it again in the Irishman. I've never seen another actor do this, but he eats at people. Like when yeah. he's yelling at Penny Blanco, he's eating the steak. He's like eating it. In I love steak. it when actors do that, or they smoke at each other. I think. Yeah, and he, he does it to Jimmy Hoffa constantly in the Irishman. And it's just like this guy is full of shit. Is just going to eat at you to tell you. I was going to say, I, I when I was talking about New York directors a, a minute ago, I. I 
failed to mention one of my other favorites, Abel Ferraro, who I think was oh, yeah. talked about as being maybe directing this at some point um, before it got to De Palma, which would have been amazing in its own way, I'm sure. But um, Victor Argo would have played Carly. Yeah. <laughs> but De Palma, yeah, De Palma brings his own, you know, his own way of doing things to it, which is part of what makes it so so unique. But it is, yeah, I love Pacino's performance. It's such a haunted, melancholy performance. And that the only other thing I really wanted to say is I'm not generally like a, a very big fan of voiceover. And I think this this movie is one of my favorite and you know, short of Terrence Malick movies, this is one of my favorite instances of voiceover. I think Pacino's something he's doing and the way he talks in those kind of it functions in the way of like interiority in a novel, which is not, you know, it's often intended that way in movies and it very rarely works that way. But in this movie, it works that way and it feels that way and you kind of feel that emotion in a really interesting way. And um, just, yeah, I love the rhythms of his speech, whatever he's doing with this accent. I just love the rhythms of his speech in this movie. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for doing this. I could have talked De Palma, Pacino, and Carlito's way with you all night. So thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm so glad to have a really good friend of mine, Nikki Dolson, with me to talk about The Desperate Hours. That's William Wyler's original version of the story, not the remake that Michael Cimino made with like Mickey Rourke in the early 90s. This is the 1955 version starring Humphrey Bogart, Frederick March, and it is a really good thriller, and it was just released by Arrow. So, Nikki, had you seen this movie before? I had not even heard of it. Oh, okay. I I was so delighted, because I'm always down for Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. uh, And the, the setup was really just up my alley, so I was definitely down to watch this and it was great i'm so happy i got to see it thank you so much of course yeah it's a really like it's a crackerjack home invasion movie i think i saw it for the first time just a couple years ago it was in the criterion channel i can't remember what they were calling um the certain collection that they were showing it as a part of but that's where i saw it for the first time a few years ago and just instantly uh, was a fan like why why aren't more people talking about this movie I guess it wasn't a huge hit it was there was a novel there was a play it was kind of loosely based on a real hmm. life home invasion and oh, yeah like Paul Newman was in the stage version and they didn't think he was a big enough actor in 1955 so they went with Humphrey Bogart and they mm-hmm. just made the character older. So he almost was like this young beefcake guy as the yeah. villain, the the ringleader of these three people that escape from prison and mm-hmm. uh, hole up in a suburban family in Indiana's house. So talk to me about uh, your experience watching this one. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm that Gen X kid. So I watched a lot of like the, the, the leave it to beaver reruns and all of that and so like yeah. that opening scene and i you know just that the music and it's all you know it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're around the table yeah yes and it's you know mom and older sister and gee dad i'm not little anymore and it's just <laughs> so perfect in that way 
And then I'm like, okay, wait, what am I watching again? <laughs> like, I, I just somehow expected the big, like, you know, the, I don't know, the 30s and 40s, you know, they, they break out of prison and you get the searchlights and the sirens and then you see them, you know, run off into the city and then you get, like, the innocent folks they run into. Um, and this yeah. just really opened you up into that um, suburban. Yeah, it kind of, like, lulls <laughs> you into thinking you're watching something like a Leave it to Beaver and then all of a sudden... Uh, we're in a real tense standoff of these criminals holding these people hostage for a couple days. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, it was just so the, 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 the turns that it makes. And it's just, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's like you said, it was play. So it's always just these people and how they're rubbing up against each other and how, you know, the Humphrey Bogart's Glenn and his brother and just like I love Humphrey Bogart but I don't think I've I've watched him in you know the the you know Sam Spade and just you know Mm -hmm. Casablanca and I don't think I've ever stopped to really like watch his face Um, and in this uh I mean not to skip to like the end but like when he hears what's happened to his brother and the way his face like crumpled right then I went Oh, I'm so glad I watched it so I can rewatch this again. Like I, 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 I love Humphrey Bogart. I think he's an excellent actor. But like I said, I just hadn't taken the time to really look at him acting, and yeah. that just made me like just want to like go rewatch everything again. Um, I he know. Was so great at that moment and through the whole thing, just how the relationship between he and his brother. Um, the you know the little boy and his dad, mm-hmm. um, the those those dynamic between these people who are learning how to be men and what the kind of men exist in the world, and what um and how the world treats you depending on where you come from, yeah, and all of that in there, and it's just I. I'm sad to hear it didn't do so great because I think it's excellent. <laughs> I think it's really I great. I know. I agree with you. I was um, thinking, speaking of Humphrey Bogart, one that I want to rewatch. I think I saw it. The title is really familiar. The mm. Petrified Forest from 1936. I was mm. reading um, like an excerpt of an interview where Bogart was saying he thought it was that character as a grown up as who he played in The oh. Desperate Hours. So I was like, ooh, I should go back and rewatch that. But yeah, yeah, when I was watching um, this again the other night, this was only the second time I saw it, I, exactly what you were saying. I think Bogart, because you are so used to him in Casablanca and Key Largo and kind of playing these sort of romantic, weary characters that you were in love with, like the, you know, Sam Spade or um, Philip Marlowe or these types of, you know, a little bit jaded, but there's that real world uh that weary cynicism um going through but he's still kind of a romantic lead but when he played the heavy you could tell he's just having so much fun like his eyes light up and sometimes he will smile without trying to smile and you know he's convincing it's not like he's um you know breaking his character but in the character like 
ooh, I'm doing something. You can kind of see like this is why he got into acting. And it reminded me of this movie called Three on a Match, which ooh. was this pre-code movie uh, with like three female leads. I talked about it with Sheila O'Malley in our pre-code episode like a while back. And uh, he plays, he's only on screen for like, I don't know, five minutes, but he's the the villain. And there's a Ooh. scene where he's like menacing this female coke addict and like doing something with his nose and his eyes light up. And, you know, like had he played just villains, it would have been interesting. I'm glad he played varied characters, but there's something about a Bogart heavy and his um, strengths as an actor in reacting to other people. I think that's really cool. He listens and you can see that. Yes, yes. He's so great. I will definitely have to check out Three on a Match. I've written that one down. Okay, um, cool. He's so great. Um, and so is everybody who's around him. Who plays the father again? Is that Frederick March? It is. Yeah, an older Frederick March. It was supposed to be Spencer Tracy, but they couldn't oh. agree on top billing. Uh, both wow. Bogart and Spencer wanted, and they were friends. They just, neither one of them was backing down from that who gets top billing thing. And uh, they thought, you know, we're, we're going to keep Bogart in the movie because he's the bigger draw. And so they went with Frederick March, who's fine with not being um, top, top build. And of course, you know, William Wyler worked with him. Uh, he works with a lot of the same actors or he loved working with actors, especially he directed 13 Oscar winning performances. He's phenomenal. And he did, you know, Best Years of Our Lives, which is one of my favorites with Frederick March. So I was glad to see Frederick March in another one. Yeah, yeah, he, he was great. He was great. The full arc that he as the father goes through. Mm-hmm. Um, just I'm like, OK, this is I mean, what would you do? I mean, there was so many times like I have so many asides. I'm like, every time somebody leaves the house and you don't go with them. The camera yes. does. I'm like, what just happened? Where are like, they going? Yeah. Did Cindy just pick over her food with her bow and then like come home? Was she just surly the whole night? Like, what did they talk about? What I she- know the daughter is who we're talking about in the movie. Yeah. She's like 19 and she's dating Gig Young, who's older and he's a an attorney and can kind of tell like she's at the part where she wants to get married and he doesn't. He hasn't committed yet, but, you know, he loves her. And in order to keep up appearances that they don't have these villains in the house, they keep letting her go on dates with this guy. And, you know, just like you better act right or pretend everything is fine or we'll kill your family. So you kind of wonder what what would that evening have been like? How do you make (laughs) out with your boyfriend and know that? I mean, she gets in weird arguments and tries to, like, get Gig Young to, like, you know, back up, don't come in the house and that kind of thing. And, oh, it's intense. She breaks up with him. And yes. he's like, not, I don't believe it. Like, you, he, like, drives back and forth past the house. And I'm like, if not for the weird standoff that's happening that you don't actually know about, this is very stalker behavior, sir. Let it go. <laughs> you're like, dude, go home. Mm-hmm. But you're, I was kind of thinking like, you know, and the, her little brother tried mm-hmm. to, he was the one who was the first one trying to be brave, like jump from the roof and like run to a neighbor's or something. And yeah. 
uh, they catch him. But I was thinking maybe we should try that again with a kid and he can go run in the boyfriend's car or something. And, and like, this is what's happening, but I don't know what I would do. And it would also be really hard um, if you're the wife character because you're like you know the husband has to go to work the next day and you know some men like what would you do like you, you know um and like there's an incident early in do you guys have a gun in the house and part of you wants her to say no but there is one and you're just oh so stressful yes yeah and they keep any you know the the third man that uh goes with them so it's oh the o-fish guy yeah yeah, Hal is the younger brother. And then there's the guy, they're like 6'3", 260 pounds. And then you see him. He's like the first one you see. And I'm like, oh, my God. That would be terrifying. Yes. Yeah. And they Ugh. keep, he is like his weapon. He's yeah. like, do you want that guy to find the gun? Or do you yeah. want me to? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good cop, bad cop, but with the bad guys. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm the least of your worries, and I'm just barely keeping this guy on a leash. So, how about you help me out here? And she does, because yeah. I mean, what do you? Do? You know, know. You shoot so somebody? scary. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's very much. They stick to who they are. They're very yeah. much who they are. Um, um, you know, nobody gets out of character. Nobody, you know, suddenly, you know, is stronger than everybody else and breaks out and just everybody's very much you know the, the little boy at, you know that's the early scene you get is you know i'm not little anymore i'm not ralphie i'm ralph yes <laughs> and yeah. i don't kiss my dad goodbye in the morning i don't do that anymore i'm you know and they're like well there's another milepost you know but he's still mm-hmm. this you know brave and brazen little boy who has no idea why people have limits you know and mm-hmm. he doesn't doesn't want them and he still does it i mean had it not been for the little boy that adorable little boy they the movie would have ended early <laughs> exactly you no know, they got everybody out of the house but then of course his butt was on the roof jumping <laughs> yes oh my gosh i know it's yeah the other actors in the movie we should say are martha scott is the mom uh mary murphy is cindy the daughter uh, Ralphie or Ralph as he goes in the beginning is Richard Iyer if I'm saying that correctly but mm-hmm. you also have Arthur Kennedy is the sheriff the deputy sheriff in the movie that's another thing that's interesting in the film you have like you know the jurisdictional uh, thing of is it the FBI or the local police or the people like uh, some they know of the Humphrey Bogart character's girlfriend is, is coming for a rendezvous and some stupid cop like doesn't follow directions and pulls her over for like speeding or something even though they know it's her car and should have just let her go in order to help uh you know figure out where she's going to meet them and the jumps the gun and so there's all this stuff uh takes place in indiana they use some real street names and so they tried for some real uh realism i think and it it works yeah it's so great. I mean, you know, it's the, um, the, the, the scene, the thing I wanted to, to really talk about was the, the younger brother, Hal, but that moment when he's looking out the window at the, when the, you know, the, the teenagers essentially show up to pick up the girls from the house, mm-hmm. all 
laughing and crowling in into the car and he's looking out and he's grinning, but he's watching them. And you could see like how much of his life he has spent away from what he could have had. Yep. You know, that, that moment when he, you know, I, I forget what uh, Humphrey Bogart's character says to him, but he's like, yeah, you taught me everything except how to live in a house like this. That's such a good line, isn't it's, it? Yeah. And again, Bogart's face when he, when, you know, the brother, when he hears that, he's like, you know, like he's, he's trying to control these two people to keep his brother close and keep, you know, Robeson or whatever his name is. I can't remember. It's Corbison. I don't know. Um, But to keep control over them and keep his brother close and safe in theory, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's um yeah, Hal Griffin is played by Dewey Martin and uh it's like Samuel Kobish is Robert Middleton is the big oh scary guy. Yes. Kobish, that's it. Uh, it's just so you see like everything that Hal's missed out on because like obviously he idolized his brother and Mm -hmm. ran with his brother because of course you did, you know, they're family and Mm-hmm. Um, the, I I I got from it like they are all they have. Yep. Is, um, and just that that dynamic was really the like, what drew me in. He's like, you know, just relax. And you see how Hal is is when he finds the Cindy's room, mm-hmm. and he like, and I'm like, oh, please don't let it be that. <laughs> like, yeah, don't be creepy. Know, yeah, that Nick line was really we were up on it constantly. Yeah. Um, um, and he's like, you know, touching the 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 canopy, the canopy bed, um, mm-hmm. just and you know, by the time we get to the point where he's looking out the window at the, you know, the teenagers having a life, yeah, um, I start to think back at him in her bedroom, and it's not, I mean, yes, it's the girly frilly things that he's touching and enjoying, but I also think it's the life he's never gonna have. Yes, no, I think you're right. Yeah, it's just you know, he's just fascinated like he's never seen anything like this you know none of them have you hit you hear Kobish talking about it's got three bedrooms and two bathrooms you know yes <laughs> you know, it's yeah cute. they're marveling over how people live like this like who are these people yeah um but I mean they have all of this thing and yet they're not um able to stay away from bad things happening to them bad things happen to everybody like it came yes. to this to this house to the street to this little town yeah um, yeah there's no you know it doesn't matter how far how hard you try you're still in it it's just you know, like you said, yeah you're didn't he say like it's just your time or, or something like that yes. mm-hmm. yeah you know nikki you are so um just brilliant because you brought up leave it to beaver and do you know the house that was used in the final uh, television season of leave it to beaver was used for exterior shots in the movie so it might have like kind of triggered a subconscious thing i'm just reading also the script is so good we've been quoting lines from it joseph hayes was a screenwriter he won the edgar award for the mystery writers of america for best screenplay uh that year and oh, nice. it's 
Yeah, it is a good one for sure. And, you know, I think these dynamics are so good. And I love you also bring up the sort of the three dimensionality of everyone and how all of these people you follow and nobody, you know, breaks like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, he's a genius or, you know, it doesn't have any of those things. What's so cool is William Wyler. uh, This is also the first black and white movie. It sounds like was um, also shot in the Vista Vision uh, process the widescreen. But William Wyler loved using deep focus cinematography. He was the cinematographer, Greg Toland, who did um, Citizen Kane. But before Citizen Kane, he worked with Wyler on some stuff. And it's one of those things where because it's so uh, deep, like there's scenes where the blocking is so perfect. You see people like upstairs by the railing and going down the stairs and on the phone and everyone is in a precise place where you can look at their face and you know what each character is thinking. And it's just unbelievably great. So what did you think of the framing and stuff in this? It's it's I didn't know where to look first because like, you yeah. know, there's the movement that's happening which frequently in when they're on the the phone every time the phone rang i and know so, you know if it was the living room phone then they were in that lower left corner and then you'd have somebody just behind and then up on a stair listening and then somebody yeah. else on my, like it was just everything yeah nobody's off screen and yet it, your eye is drawn to all of them it's you know the the you know the the daughter's upstairs listening to her mom on the phone and like you know grabbing the railing and just you know the stress of that you mm-hmm. know and like looking through the the railings you know down at them and it's just so it's so great it's so great and the 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 end of it where before um Hal dies when he's uh after he he's going to the diner to use the phone like he's thinking yes. like, um that shot of like all the people inside of the diner as he's like just before he's going in i was like this is clearly something's gonna happen here like yes he's never gonna get to make this call and you know that but it's like is he gonna stop is he just gonna like keep going on but of course he can't because Mm his can't abandon his brother even though that's kind of what he's done yeah you know it's it's um it's it's great to look at. I mean, I know on rewatch, um, I have to like look at somebody else's faces in that moment. It's hard. Um, you don't know where to look. It's you yeah. know, everyone is going through a conflict and a different point of view. And uh, yeah, I think it's a really, really special movie. It's not one that you uh, think of like first when you're imagining or looking back on Humphrey Bogart's career but I think if you're a fan what we're saying is check it out if you've missed it or it's been a while it's late stage Bogart and it is excellent yeah it is I mean honestly it's the like you said what would you do but also when when the boyfriend uh gets Cindy out of the house after the police up and I am like that's super great that you saved me, but my whole family is bad. I know. Like, I'm like, if it goes bad, like, that relationship is over. It is I over. Know. Like, there's no getting over it. There's no. no getting, you know. 
Uh, yeah. He pulls her out of the house and that's great. But at the same time, you're like, oh my God. Like she doesn't want to leave her mom, which <laughs> I can't even imagine leaving my mom or you. I'm sure same thing. Yeah. You know, snatches her out the door. <laughs> yes. At that moment. Like, hey, let's go party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. Uh yeah. yeah. I knew I like when I was uh, when I received it, I just thought that you would especially love it because you write all of this brilliant domestic fiction, um, this crime fiction where you see sort of the dark side lurking beneath uh, people, families, uh, moms, dads, like mistresses, these people that you see on a daily basis, like your brilliant piece uh, for Southwest Review that just came out that I loved. Yeah. <clears throat> you um it it is the the thing i mean it's familiar but also it's it's not in in that and i like playing with that but i mean you know it doesn't matter what you know who you are you're still going to have those relationships but it's like of course much to lose yes and, and always you know how do you how do you protect that and also i mean you yeah. know are, and still be a good person and not get down to a certain level. And that is what, you know, like the dad at the end, he's like, you made me like this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to do this. Yes. Mm-hmm. You made me into this man. And he doesn't. And, and at the end, he does not have it in him, even no. though he, because of the, you know, his family has been, you know, mm-hmm. at gunpoint. I mean, that alone, like there's no, there's no yeah. like, living with that forever in that i know uh, the one thing that kind of like <laughs> when i watch the movie they you know there's there's machine gun fire at the end we like kill the bad guys or whatever and the family just like immediately walks right back into the house I- i'm getting out of that house for a little bit man we <laughs> like where are we living now because this block yeah. is down. we are not going <laughs> to sleep under this roof again <laughs> yes sure. and uh, uh the real family didn't they moved yeah Absolutely. Like, there's no going back. Like, my yeah. car, when I never wanted to be in it again. Like, <laughs> you when know, you were it, carjacked, or what happened? No, no, no. So, <laughs> my our our very first car, and like our very first, we're we're a married couple apartment. Uh-huh. Our car was under the the carport, and it, the way um, the apartment was set up, usually, you know, you had an assigned parking spot, and ours just happened to be like really close to our door. Okay. Um, so going in and out doing laundry one day <laughs> and uh, my husband comes in as I'm going out and he's like, where's the car? And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> where's the car? So oh. it's not go look at the spot. I go look up on the wall like, oh no, I've left the car with the keys in it somewhere. And, and the keys are hanging there on the wall in broad daylight while he and I are coming in and out of the house. Somebody has uh, stolen our car. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. And we had a few cars stolen too, and it's so frightening. It just, it was just, I'm like, I don't, I don't want this thing anymore. They like find it, like, mm-hmm. the day, like at the, like the 30 days, the insurance is like, it's never coming back. We're just going to write this off. Yeah. Yeah. Like the day I'm supposed to sign that paperwork, they call and say, your car's in uh, uh police lockup. Come get it. Cause it was found like two weeks prior and they, oh, wow ever put together that it was our car until that day and i was like i don't i don't want this anymore i don't know 
my car. You know, they like took the car seat out of it. You know, they, you know, went through all the papers and whatnot, but it's just like, it's, it's a violation. I mean, it's a car, it's a thing, but it's still a violation, you know, and to have that happen in those people's homes. Yes. And, that, and it's just, uh Oh my gosh. Well, that's kind of, I don't know if I've told you this story, but um, we had a few, my dad would always like buy and sell, fix up cars. And um, he bought a car or it was like an SUV and it got stolen from his workplace in downtown Minneapolis. And he had bills in the car that he hadn't gone and mailed yet. So our address was right there. And you know, this is suburbia. And so there was um, like a garage door opener. And um, so he reported the car and like didn't think anything of it. And my mom said um, like it was a few days later. Sure enough, at the end of the driveway, she saw some guys like stop a car right at the end of our driveway, stand and try to open the garage with the garage door opener. And she was so terrified, like watching this from uh, the living room window home alone that she just like froze. He had. My dad had changed. There was a way to change the code. So she luckily changed that code, but she couldn't move. Like she was just so scared watching this guy like try and fail to use the garage door opener. And um, she never told like my brother and I this story. And I mean, I think I would have like needed to move right away. Um, called the police and like you know it was too late by the time she was able to move because she was just like she said I don't know how I didn't have a heart attack but um yeah so it's kind of uh the same thing so why are these people just immediately walking right back into the house Nikki and I are like no way we're leaving yeah never I am in a hotel that house is on the market (laughs) We are getting the hell out of Dodge. Yes. Uh-huh. We are going back for some ID and some important papers. And that is it. All That's of about it. it. Yeah. We can raise the house just to the dirt. There's nothing. Yes. <laughs> oh my Burn God. it down. No. <laughs> yes. Like, it, something it, else. Yeah. It's not worth it to me. Nope. No. Mm-mm. I mean, Bogart, they might come. You never know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, are we sure everybody's dead? Like, it's a whole thing. Like, no. No, 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 no. It could be like a horror movie. They could come back. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're like 70, 70 years later, it doesn't matter. They're coming Ooh. back. Damn it. Yeah. We rent a house for a year and then sell it <laughs> and then just to really like break away from it. Like there's no way. Yes. I'm giving up own. <laughs> We're coming up with so many ideas for you for like more short stories that I can't wait to read. I love it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Nikki, do you have any other thoughts you want to share on the desperate hours before I let you go? You know, I, the, there's not all, there's no gore, which I mean, granted yeah. the, but the, the deaths that do happen, you get a lot of them. Um, like you hear about some, but so there's poor Mr. Patterson, the, who picks mm-hmm. up the trash from them. Yes. I was like, oh, oh he's going to get away. He's going to, oh, he didn't get away. I was so upset when I he- was so mad that he ran <laughs> right by, like when the car, or he gets out <laughs> of the truck and then he decides to run on the other side. You're like, buddy, no. Yeah. Sir, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And that was such a bad role. I'm like, how is he getting out right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, and then how? I mean, I. It's yes. like 
like when you know ha- the younger brother goes to leave i was like i feel so bad for <laughs> for glenn i felt so bad because he was losing his brother and then how hal dies i gasp i'm like what do you yes i mean obviously like all of the deaths are the same had to be had mm-hmm. to be like it's the way we had you know yeah glenn at the end the only way he was gonna like he was not the no uh, that got me it got the way gotcha. yes <laughs> so much uh yes definitely worth it it's so great yes. i am <laughs> so glad that you loved it nikki this is awesome thank yes, you I for did. uh for doing this I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.